What's up, guys? If you're on Spotify right now, please follow the show so that you don't miss any future episodes and leave a five-star review. Thank you. That trident can really, the power that comes with it, the uh, accolades that come with it, it's not good at times. What do you mean? In my opinion, no human being was created to be worshipped by another human being. You know, when you're a SEAL, go to the base that's not the SEAL base. You go to NAB or go to another base and you have that trident on. Everybody stops and they look and like, oh, crap, like you're a SEAL. And it's, it's like that can build up pride within the person. And there's been guys who, you know, it's been too much power. That's detrimental to that kid. That kid can end up dead or in prison. You know what I'm saying? If I remember this correctly, didn't you say before you mm -hmm. went into the military, like yeah. you were involved in that? Yeah, I was growing in up in yeah. the Bronx. Yeah, I grew up in the Bronx. I was a product of my environment. I yeah. didn't have a father. My father died when I was five. We left Nigeria when my father died. Yeah, you had a hold on a second. You yeah. had a really unique yeah, yeah, yeah. childhood. Obviously, yeah. tragedy in the middle of there too, yeah. and you ended yeah. up really taking it control your life and yeah, yeah. turn into an unbelievable success yeah. through through your own work which yeah. is amazing but like you were really wealthy in yeah. nigeria yeah. for like until you were five and so you had five. to come here what, yeah. what what happened there like what was yeah. what was your dad's background so my dad he was a he was a genius he was a visionary uh, entrepreneur uh philanthropist multimillionaire. you name it he did it he was he was uh he was born in nigeria left in his late teens um Ended up getting a full-ride academic scholarship to study architecture and engineering in London. Um, got his bachelor's, got his master's, started accumulating his his wealth in the West. He was one of the first black men on the board of the World Trade Center in New York City. He was one of the first black men on the board, black men on the board of the British Financial Planning Council in the UK. I mean, the dude was a genius. After a number of years and after accumulating all of his wealth in the West, he decided, I want to go back to Nigeria because... Nigeria is rich in resources. You got oil, you got natural gas, you got cocoa, you got gold, you got minerals. As a matter of fact, you got China not going into parts of Africa, not just Nigeria, but other parts of Africa as well. And and you know and, and buying up land and and, bro and doing deals with, with with Nigerian governments or property owners and and to to mine these areas for natural resources. And so my dad, knowing how how rich Nigeria was in resources and is in resources, you know, he wanted to create like a like a Nigerian Wall Street, like an African mm. Wall Street, uh, a financial sector that people from around the world could come to and do business in Africa. And so um, in the 1970s, he bought a massive plot of land called Marico, still exists to this day. And that's where he was going to build his Wall Street. He bought it for eight million pounds in the 1970s that's, and that's, that's a few bucks that's a lot of money yeah, yeah. And, and and so that's where he was going to build this this wall street essentially um uh and there was a military coup somewhere around the 70s 80s can't remember exactly i want to say it was the late 70s and uh that miracle was taken from him fast forward he went to court 
with the Nigerian government, fought them, and it, after the coup subsided, he wasn't going to go fight against a military regime. So after the coup had subsided, he went fought against the Nigerian government um, in the court system. They, the federal government, said to him, "All right, what do you want for compensation? We're not going to give you Marico back. What do you want? Do you want the money back? What is it that you want?" And and so they settled. And the settle in the settlement, my dad requested a lagoon. It was literally a swamp, but he requested a lagoon. Uh, and uh, and he and the Nigerian government was like, "A lagoon? What are you going to do with a lagoon?" He's like, "Don't worry about it. Just give me the lagoon." <laughs> and uh, and so what he did was he hired Dutch engineers to dredge the foreshore, create six interlinks, and essentially create one of the first man-made islands in Nigeria, which is it's, it exists to this day. It's now known as Banana Island, which is a, a um, it's a uh, pretty much like a Beverly Hills. It's where like some of the richest Nigerians, richest Africans in the world have property on Banana Island. Um, so that's my dad's uh, that island. My dad created that island. Wow! He hired. I'll a, put that map in the corner of the screen yeah, for people yeah. to see. And there's a there should be a story on on somewhere. Um, it's a bunch of stories on the internet around it. But wow! Um, so he built this. So he built it. He built Banana Island. How big's the island again? I think he just said that, but I can't even remember, bro. I can't remember. Still, like but, this, uh, all this I'm looking at right here. This is all. Nah, that's Ikoyi. That's Lagos Island. Bananas. This, this whole thing right now oh, that looks like a banana. Right. That would make sense. Here's a, here's a crazy thing. It wasn't supposed to be a island for with luxury hotels and multi million dollar estates or any of that stuff, right? Yeah, I would click images. Um, click images. Yeah, you'll see like. Let's see images. What am I looking for? I mean. Oh shit! The houses and stuff that's on it. Yo, dad was balling. Yeah, so that's when I when he started dredging the foreshore and uh, creating the island. That's when I was born. So I was born in '82, and uh, I was born into the riches and wealth. Um, um, we had nannies, cars, drivers. I mean, you name it. We traveled all over the world. My dad was a multimillionaire. My mom. And you remember this well. Not not a lot. I mean, I left when I was five, so I don't remember too much. I remember little things. Like, I remember my dad. I remember um, uh, the private school I went to um, in Okoye, Lagos. And, you know, I remember some of the people very vaguely. Um, um, but uh, I, I had pictures all around. I had pictures in my office and stuff of us on our horse or with my, you know, dad, one of my, one of my dad's fancy cars. And, you know, him, my grandmother tra- traveling in London with her fur coat on and my dad got her and all all of this other stuff and pictures of the day. As a matter of fact, I remember years later after my dad la- died, I found a letter from from the White House, Ronald Reagan, that he had written to my dad. You know what I mean? Because my dad was he was well connected all sure. over, yeah. all over the world. So, brilliant man. And so, um, so I, that's the life I was born into. Fast forward after the land after the land had formed. And uh, uh, he started construction on the buildings. Um, the Lagos state government not the federal government but the lego state government came in and said the federal government was never supposed to award him the lagoon they said mm. that, that the lagoon belonged to the state but nigeria is a very corrupt nation it's historically been one of the most corrupt countries uh for the last 40 50 decades and uh they conveniently waited until the land had formed and until construction started, building the building, to come in and say that belonged to us. 
that so they just took it to us. They just took it from us. So they essentially took it. My dad, my mom, you know, would tell my dad all the time, listen, you need to put money back in the States because I don't trust the Nigerian system. And if what happened to you in the 70s happens again, we're going to lose everything because my dad had leveraged everything, all his art, mm. our house, millions of dollars. And he would always tell my mom, listen, my priority is Nigeria. Let me get this, this whole oh. thing set up. So that Nigeria can be in a better place. And once it's all set up and we're getting paid rent and all that, then we'll put all the millions of dollars in the U.S. But this is my priority because he was trying to do something for the people. It wasn't about him doing it. Yeah, he was going to make money, but it was about him doing something for Nigeria. As a matter of fact, the same architect of the World Trade Center was a good friend of his. He architect and and, and, and created the blueprints for the, 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 the Twin Towers that were supposed to stand at the center of well, Lagoon City, his mm. name was changed to Banana Island, right? Because again, he wanted to do something for the people. But anyway, I say all I have to say, he went to court to go fight the Nigerian government again, and uh, he died three three weeks later. How did he die? So, a long story short, a lot more to stories on my my book Transform. I break it down, but the autopsy showed that he was given bad medication. He was bitten by a dog. Um, went for a walk, super stressed out. Um, in Nigeria. In Nigeria. Yeah, super stressed out. Went for a walk. And uh, uh, that's what he would do to clear his mind. Neighbor's dog on the compound next to us broke free. My dad had done these walks all a bunch of times. Never happened. Dog broke free, slid through the gate, bit him. Right? So my dad went to, the, went, I mean, naturally, you know, he went to the doctors. Right? Uh, I want to say the next day. And uh, got medication uh, to treat, you know, I think it was supposed to be like anti-rabies, like prophylaxis, I can't remember, but some type of medication. Um, didn't take the medication right away. Flew to Germany real quick because he had friends and lawyers and, and, and stuff in Germany. Did something out there in Germany. Flew from Germany to New York. Was out there for a couple of days. And then he went, my mom, you know, my mom told him, you need to take the medication. He wouldn't take it. He didn't take it. He's like, I'm going to wait till I get back home. Gets back to Nigeria, takes the medication, and goes to go take a bath, never comes out. So the medication is what killed him. He just had a reaction with the- No, it was essentially poison. Yeah. Because my dad was, my dad- the, he was very connected in Nigeria. He was connected to, to to politicians. He was connected to the Oluolu, which is considered like the king of the Yorubas. Oh he was connected to generals. He was connected to a lot of people. My dad was a very, very driven person. And again, he wanted to create the island because he felt in his mind, if I create something where there was never something, no one could ever come in and say it was it's mine because it never existed, right? And so he thought he had bulletproofed this 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 island he bulletproofed this dream of his and in reality you know there's a saying in nigeria if you fight corruption it'll fight back <laughs> because uh nigeria is so corrupt and so when they found a loophole and did what they did they knew that come hell or high water my dad was going to fight tooth and nail to get it back so they killed him so essentially they killed him and the my my dad's personal security guard to this day is the manager one of the managers of the island so it wasn't just people outside but it was people in his circle. So that guy is still there today. Still there and today. You feel a certain type of way, like he. You know. You know. It. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, for him to be my dad, there were a lot of people that were after my dad was gone, inside his circle, outside of his circle, that got portions of that island. That got a lot. As a matter of fact, I did a post, a July Fourth uh, post, that went like super viral on Twitter. It got like. 
I don't know, like four or five million views on Twitter. It was like, like, and like it would just blew up. Brad could tell you about it. If you go to my Twitter, I, there's a post and uh, I did July 4th post where I shared my dad's story. I didn't, I didn't share it like to pretty much bash Nigeria or anything like that. I just shared it to just kind of tell the story how, why I'm grateful to be in America because of what happened to my dad. And uh, keep going. Down. I gotta go away now. Uh, July 13th. You said it's July 4th? July 4th, yeah. Uh, that was a follow up one. July 5th, July yeah, so 4th. You can click on that post. Yeah. You wanna read it? So, uh, so after. Wait, the top part is cut off, right? Yeah, after completing his bachelor's. Oh, after completing his bachelor's and master's in the UK, he created multiple businesses in the West and generated more wealth than he could have ever imagined. Dad brought all his talents and expertise back to Nigeria with the hopes of creating uh, a World Trade Center, Africa, Wall Street. When I was born in Nigeria, I was surrounded by wealth, servants, opulence, blah, blah, blah. I already covered that. In 1987, oh, well, let me do that. Uh, service, uh, I was surrounded by service, opulence, loving parent who, despite having it all, modeled the importance of hard work, never being a victim, and never being satisfied with mediocrity. In 1987, the Nigerian government illegally and corruptly stole all of my dad's assets, including his man-made island that's now worth billions and was renamed Banana Island. While fighting the Nigerian government in court, he mysteriously died weeks later we went from rich to poor overnight my mom brought us me and my brother in america it wasn't easy as we literally started from the bottom of the bronx my brother and i applied what our parents instilled in us at an early age despite a plethora of mistakes i made it despite a plethora of mistakes i made we both became very successful without the opportunities america has afforded my family i'd be nothing yeah america isn't perfect we have our issues just like every other country on the planet, but America is one of the handful of places in the world where you can start with nothing, put in the work, and end up at the top. I love this country, and I'm not ashamed to say it. And the moment I feel otherwise, I'm going to pack up my stuff, teach my kids a new language, and seek life elsewhere. With that wow. said, happy, happy, uh, happy Independence Day, July 4th. And so the comments, if you go down, it's like 4 million views, right? The comments, dude, that I got, I got tens of thousands of comments, yeah. right? most of them from nigerians and what they say all kinds of good stuff they were just like oh my god we didn't know that you were the son of of chief adebayo adeleke you are his son because because i was in this movie called plane and so i remember when with gerard butler with gerard butler yeah Yeah. and when plane came out uh i was getting a lot of nigerians hit me up like i saw your name in the credits i was like this is a euro but this is adeleke and then so they knew me from the film a lot of nigerians and then when they when i posted this they was like we didn't know that you, this was your dad, the mm. chief Adebayo, because my dad's like a legend in Nigeria, right? And another, there's, I mean, there's tens of thousands of comments and retweets and all that. And one thing that was, and I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make here is that there were a bunch of Nigerians who said the current president of Nigeria lied to us. We've always known that he's he was lying about the, the origins of Banana oh, Island so they, because he was uh, the senator of Lagos a bitch. when my dad in 1987. Now, now you you were five years old. I was five. Okay. Yeah. So how'd you find out your dad died? My mom. So I remember, never, I'll never forget the moment. My, we were sitting on this like red, it was like a couch slash chair because it was about this wide. Uh, my mom put me on, on my right, on my, her right side, my brother on her left. And she delivered the news in such a calm way. She, she was just like, hey, your dad's died and he's not coming back. And she, it wasn't that she was being cold and stoic. I asked about it years later, but I, but in retrospect, I could say that she was, she kept it. She knew that she had to kept it to keep it together, 
so that we can keep it together. Because if she was, you know, falling apart and crying and screaming, then we would fall apart crying and screaming and it would just create this never-ending cycle. And she said it in such a calm way that right after that, me and my brother looked at each other. We said, okay. And we went back to playing with our toys. You also, we, we were five, young. You don't have yeah, a we don't, we don't have a concept of that. And on top of that, on top of that, my dad traveled a lot for work. So to us, it was like, oh, he's just going on another business oh, trip. Oh, shit. Because we didn't understand death. But also, I think a big part of it was her delivery. Because if she was hysterical and crying, it's like, you know, it's like one of the key lessons we learn in combat is when you're in the combat situations, you know, if your leader is like frantic and going crazy in the midst of a firefight, like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Like, like, like uh, we have a saying in our community. Calm breeds calm, right? But if you have somebody that, like a leader at the top that's freaking out, don't know what to do, somebody will eventually like jump in and fill that void. Be like, shut up, all right, you get over there. You cover down on that door. You get up there. You get on the phone with the bird. But for the most part, like there might be an instance where where, where everybody else can be in disarray. And that, that probably won't, doesn't apply to soft units, but I would probably say like, let's say infantry units, like mm. especially like infantry unit has a, a lot of young privates in it, right? If you're looking at that leader and that leader's falling apart, chances are you're going to fall apart. But if you're looking at that leader in the middle of the shit storm, like he's keeping it together, you'll be like, cool, let's rock. Let's, let's, let's go get this. You know what I mean? And so that's what my mom was applying. She, and she was keeping it together so that we can keep it together. And she, she Mom did, sounds like a really strong woman. Oh, she's woman. a beast. If you look up her on Instagram, dude, she's 71. <laughs> dude, she's like does pull-ups, push-ups, run. I mean, people think she's like my sister sometimes. Like she's oh a beast because she still has that let's go get it. Like her mindset is I'm not going to rely on anybody to do anything for me. Mm. I'm not, I don't even want to have to rely on medication. I don't, have to, I don't want to rely on having to go to the hospital for anything. And she had that mindset ever since my dad died. See, this is something that yeah. in this country – like yeah. I, I speak for myself and yeah. probably a lot of other people yeah like we don't get that yeah. just like we don't really understand what it's like to have our land invaded yeah. or something yeah. like that yeah. right we're this experiment in the west yeah. beautiful experiment yeah this island and we you know we take for granted the fact that i can pick up the phone call 911 some chick's gonna answer yeah. right yep. you know yep. i go to the hospital i say i need something like yep. even people who are uninsured and that's a huge problem we gotta yeah. fix that but yeah. like they'll still give them treatment yeah, and stuff yeah, yeah you know you just kind of th- like i i don't know more and more recently i've said this on on a lot of podcasts recently but i keep thinking about like how fragile society it is, is man and i'm trying to like understand how close we are to like not having that stuff if yeah. something went wrong. Yeah, but you get that. Yeah, I your get mom it. gets it and completely. Get, yep, and my, parenting. I think. I think it's so funny you bring it up because I think that the issue, the reason why we are where we are. I'm about to be 41 in, in, in two weeks, right? You look great. Ah, trying, brother. It's not <laughs> easy, man. But, but I would. I would just like. I think you're still in that same time period where we had to work. We we didn't have social media. We didn't like. We had to go. We had to entertain ourselves. Like we had to, we had to, we had to, we, for the most part, I want to say, I know I got discipline. Like we got discipline and sometimes yeah. we got yelled at, not just by our parents, but by like the neighbor. Yes. Like, Yo, what, what do you do? Get over here. I'm not, you go tell your mama on you, but yes. that doesn't happen now. And, 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 and parents like parents are so, it's like parents are scared of their kids, man. I, yeah. Dude, I was at, I, I told Brad, I went to Phil's barbecue yesterday Oh, I didn't tell Brad. I told Jessica. I went to Phil's barbecue yesterday. It was this long line. 
and and and, it's, and, and Phil's Barbecue is like a, on a square. It takes up this square of a block, and it's in like this uh, this kind of strip mall. But it's like the, the 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 square is in the center of the strip mall, and so there's there's cars that drive back and forth on each side of the uh, of Phil's Barbecue. And it's these two kids. The boy had to couldn't have been no older than ten years old. The girl couldn't have been no older than like seven years old. And they're literally running. They're playing tag, hitting each other, and running into the street. Like cars are like driving by, stopping, yeah. about to hit the kids. And yo, I got my blood was boiling. I look back at the parents. I was like, I was literally about to yell at the parents because I was like, yo, your kid is gonna die. Because then the kids and the, the one girl, she's not even looking when she's like running from her brother. She's just like blindly running into the street. And Caden and Caleb, my two oldest sons, they came up to me because I saw this and they were just like, yeah, that, they wouldn't you. be doing yeah. that. Yeah, like, like, I said to him, I, was, I said to Caleb, I was like, I was, like, I was hoping, I was like, yeah, because you know I whoop your ass. And they, <laughs> and they laughed. It's like, we know, Dad. And they kept on coming up to me for me to do something. And I wanted to, but at the same time, there's a dad right there. Finally, the dad, see, because everybody's looking at the kids running constantly into the street, about to get hit by a car and running back. And finally, the dad walks up and the dad puts his hands on the kids and just, it's like he didn't even know what to say. He just he just put his hands on the on his son's shoulder and then walked back. And I was like, that's the problem. Like that those two kids, they don't know what discipline yeah, is. They no don't learning. understand consequences for actions. Yeah. They don't understand that like, yo, there's certain things you're supposed to do, there's certain things you're not supposed to do. When when somebody approaches you that's an authority figure, there's a way you're supposed to respond. And we've lost that and a lot of that comes from the parents. Guess what, everybody? It is that time of year again. Football season is officially upon us, and you know what that means. It is time to place those bets. As a better, you demand perfection, and my bookie delivers. NFL, college football, and a brand new cash out system gives you the opportunity to bet and win all season long. First two legs of your parlay hit. With my bookie, you can cash out and place a new bet or let it ride for a chance at a bigger prize. So join the my bookie family for an entire season filled with daily odds boosts, same game parlays, and super contests. Oh yeah, there's also a special twist. Down below in the description, there's a link that will take you to download the app. Upon doing so, you can use the promo code DOOR D-O-R-E-Y on a deposit of $50 or more to get up to $200 injected instantly right into your account. Once again, click that link below and use the promo code DOREY, D-O-R-E-Y, on your first $50 deposit or more and get cash quick. Thank you so much to MyBookie for supporting our podcast. Please show them some love with a download today. And, yes. and, 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 and my mom, my mom, my grandmother, my grandfather, my mom would tell me like, they loved her, but they were like, yo, you will do things right the, f- yes. the, you, or, or the first time. You will show up on time. You will be respectful. You will do X, Y, and Z. And if she didn't, then she had to pay the man for it. And so she instilled that in us. And that's why she was and still is the woman. She And we've lo- the parenting has been lost. Why do you think that's happened? <sighs> I think a part of it is... Social media, that's a small part of it. Mm-hmm. I think I think you have a lot of, I think you have this generation that, at least my generation, that doesn't really want to grow up. I think, you know, we want to stay, we want to stay 20, mm. 16. I think you have a lot of people that are living 
their lives through their kids or mm. trying to live their lives through yes. their kids instead of being a parent, be a friend. I see it with, you know, I have friends who, you know, they're my age and their kids be bugging out. And I tell them like, yo, you need to get that in check right now, son. And it's like, ah, they giggle and laugh because it's like they want to be friends. The divorce rate has always been about, has been around, I don't, I don't want to say always, but I would say in the recent, what, 20, 30 years, it's always been around 50%, right? That sounds right. And so you have parents who have to essentially be a friend to maintain a relationship with uh, a kid. Yeah. Because it's like, mommy can't be the bad guy because daddy can't be, mommy and daddy hate each other. You know, mommy's always looking for something to, you know, pin on daddy. Daddy's always looking for something to pin on mommy. Hey, I know that I, I know that I can get away with whatever I want. I know that I could do whatever I want. And I got a friend that's like that where, you know, his his kid, there's certain things he won't do to his kid. And I, I'm not talking about like spanking a kid or anything like that. Like taking the iPad away from the kid. Right. Doesn't want to be the bad guy. He wants to be he doesn't want to be the bad guy. You know, so I think that that plays a role in it as well. But I, I think it goes back to my generation doesn't want to grow up. That's a really I, I don't know that I've heard that answer before on that yeah. when I when this topic comes up. That's everything you said there, I, I agree with it. Yeah. I, and I think for anything like this, it's always gonna be a litany of reasons, yeah. right? It's not just one thing, but it, uh, one that you're kind of saying in there, yeah. I'm just going to expand yeah, and, and yeah, put yeah. The, the name on yeah. it, is the phone. Yeah, yeah. Because I yeah. think, and and more specifically, rather than just the phone and yeah. the fact that we use it a lot, we don't have presence yeah, because yeah, of it, yeah, right? Yeah. You talk about standing in line. One of the things I try to do when yeah. I'm in lines now is I like to keep my phone in my pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't want the distraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, I want to be present as much as I fucking hate lines. Yeah, yeah. I want to be present in this yeah, line. Yeah. I'll watch people. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Which is something you had to be very good at in yeah, your yeah, career yeah, and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm looking at a lot of parents where kids have been raised on this thing, yeah. watching all that shit on yeah, TikTok yeah, all yeah, the time. Yeah. They don't have a, an appreciation for any respect or values like that yeah. because of it. And they don't have an example because if you look in front of them in that same line, their yeah. dad's on the fucking phone exactly 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 yeah so it's like a and and the dad doesn't want to scold them for being on the phone because he's on the phone he'd be a hypocrite yeah right yeah so i think that i think a big part of it is you know we have this dopamine cycle of cell phones yeah yeah in the country that you know is it's global now too let's be honest but you know we i see it i can speak to what i see here yeah and I, i think that combined with all those factors yeah that's really good. Parents don't want to grow up yeah. and they want to be friends with their kid. You're yeah. definitely right about yeah, that. Yeah, just think about it. Think about people 40s, 50s getting plastic surgery and, yeah. you know, to try and, you know, I'm not just talking about women, I'm talking about guys, you know what I mean? Oh, as yeah. well, trying yeah, to, yeah, like, yeah. you know, do certain, trying to stay young, wearing clothes and all of that stuff. You know what I mean? I'm guilty of that. I, I don't like wearing my hat forward. I've always liked wearing my hat backwards since I was a kid. So I'm Me guilty too. of that to a certain extent <laughs> as well. But, I, you know, it's just, we all going to get old, bro. This is sometimes I, I tell old people that try to be young. So I'm like, yo, listen. You had that time. It's over. Be old. Be cool. Like embrace it. Embrace the wisdom that you that you've gained from living life. I think people feel like if they if they live naturally, they're going to become the get off my lawn guy. That doesn't have to be the case. It doesn't have to be the case at no. all. It doesn't have to be the case. But you don't have to go to the other extreme either. Yes. By you know being immature or you know being a grandma going to the club with your granddaughter. Right. 
You know right. what I'm saying? Which or happens. being a mom and going to the club <laughs> with your daughter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Seen that one a lot. Yeah. Grandma less. Mom, yeah. I've seen yeah. a lot. Yeah, you know the deal. And it's yeah. just like, come on. And then being the one that's trying to hook up with with dude or, or push your daughter on the dudes or whatever the case may be, because uh, you know that's nah, weird. Yeah. That's it's weird. like, you know, our generation that's the that's the issue. And I think it could change. I think it could change, but I think again, it starts with conversations like this and people looking inwardly and be like, huh. You know, just like with the whole human trafficking thing, you know, the, the point of these conversations is not for us to just sit here and talk. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's for people to be able to listen and 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 reflect. Man, am I the one? That, is that me? Am, mm. am I trying to be a friend of my kid? Am I like on my cell phone all of the time, like not paying attention to my kid? Am I the one that's like you know trying to stay young, do all of these things? And if it is, you could do something about it. Yeah, I'd like to think, I mean, I I sit here while I'm doing it. I, I yeah. think I'm really lucky because I literally have the front row seat. Yeah. But I'd like to think a lot of people listening have a lot of the thoughts that pop in my head when I have different guests in here yeah. that are also popping in theirs because I'm constantly like, first of all, I have all these different people in here. So I'm yeah. constantly learning things. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, people will just be explaining their experience and it'll reveal something in like my weakness. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. feel like I have this growth yeah, pack here yeah. of like, Ooh, yeah. wait, I do that wrong. Yeah, yeah. Now I, now I know, now yeah. I can, I, I can do it, but we should live in a country where like, there is kind of like that elder statesman kind of yeah, thing yeah. with your parents, yeah. you know, and it's yeah. not buddy and friend. It's like, yeah. you have a great relationship, but yeah. parent child. I mean, exactly. my, my parents were, I, I have a great relationship with my parents. Mm. They were not my friend. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, that was a very, yeah. like, there's no mistaking that. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. I, the closest to a friend was my dad calling me buddy literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. but like, it wasn't yeah, like that. It wasn't that. like that. Yeah. No, yeah, it was like, like, hey, buddy. It was <laughs> like you're going to go fucking do this. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was nicer. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean? And it's like, have you ever read the the book The Fourth Turning? No, I haven't. You gotta check that yeah. out. It's these sociologists. I'm not gonna go. I've done it on other podcasts. Yeah. I'm not gonna spend ten minutes explaining. Yeah. But in in essence, the Spark Notes version. Yeah. These sociologists in the 1990s, sociologists, historians, said, "Wait a second. Every historian has always made the mistake of thinking that because they're a historian, they can predict the future. Mm. And when they do that, they unbiasedly or they biasly project." change what the future patterns are mm. going to be all we're going to do is we're going to identify the patterns yeah, yeah, yeah. and we're just going to go like this and yeah, we're not yeah, going to yeah. predict shit exactly. we're just going to say so that's exactly. probably what's going to happen yeah. i don't know how yeah and that's what they did and they they've essentially figured out that everything happens in these 21 to 22 year cycles of generations mm. four four generations four cycles over and over and over again yeah just to put a little cap on it for you revolutionary war 75 to 83 in yeah. the 1700s 80 to 85 mm. years later, Civil War, mm. 61 to 65. 80 to 85 years later, World War II, yeah. 41 to 45 here. Yeah. 80 to 85 years later, COVID era, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. shit kind of happens yeah, in, yeah. in weird cycles. Yeah. And one of the things that always occurs is in the different age brackets, like 0 to 21, 21 to 42, 42 to 63, mm. 63 and older, there's always the same generation on top Huh. of the same other type of generation because oh, it repeats in force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are currently in a cycle where the generation who's like in charge, mm -hmm. the 42 to 63ers, are generally, they're called the nomads. Got and they're it. the people whose parents like, that generation kind of like didn't wasn't as active with them or whatever mm -hmm. so now as parents they're trying to make it up with their kids and they don't know how to do that right so God, in this case they're trying yeah, to be yeah, like yeah, friends with yeah, them and yeah, shit yeah, that makes sense and yeah. i look at it and i hear you give yeah. a really well thought out answer like that yeah. and i'm like kind of yeah. lines up yeah man you know yeah that's the problem bro and uh well that's one of the that's one of the problems but 
I'll tell you what, I, ain't my, I, tell, I tell my kids, just, just like you said, I, I say to my kids the same thing. I ain't supposed to be your friend. Yeah. I'm supposed to be your father. And uh, my and I say that my, my Jessica, my wife, your mom is not supposed to be your friend. She's supposed to be your mom. So do X, Y, and Z, and because uh, that's the way I was raised, and that's how you that's how you raise good people who yeah. will then raise good people who will then raise good people. You know, I had somebody ask me the question the other day. He's like, "What is uh, what does winning mean to you?" Mm. And I said, "Winning to me means." My kids have grown up to be assets to society. Mm-hmm. They grow up to be respectable, law-abiding citizens, giving, self—you know, not self-serving, genuine people. That's what winning means to me. And I will not have won until that happens. And I will have failed if my kids, 20, 30, 40, you know, become 23, 40, you know, 30, whatever the case may be, and they're dirtbags mm. or they're in prison or they're like, you know, they, they, they're unaccountable or they're self-serving or they're, they're beating their wives or, you know, my daughter's sleeping around doing all of these crazy things. I will have failed. Like life for me is all about them because at the end of the day, when I'm gone, hopefully more, more than likely they'll still be here. And then when they're gone, then their legacy will still be here. And that's what it's all about. And that's why, you know, I tell them, I say, this is why daddy does what he does. This is why daddy makes you make your bed. This is why mommy has a chore list for you. This is why when we when you when you do something that you're not supposed to do, you have to get disciplined. We don't enjoy disciplining you, but we're trying to raise you up. Our job, our priority is to raise you up to be, you know, law-abiding, good, serving people. Yeah. And I, we will have failed if not. And I think that that's another thing. I think going back to the whole people don't want to grow up. What's an aspect of not growing up? Remaining selfish. I can mm. tell you, like, when I was when I was 15, when I was freaking t- a kid, it's all about me. Yeah. I want my candy. I, I, yeah, same with my kids, right? Like, you know, kids, it's all about them, right? Yeah. When you get into the teens, it's all about me. It's all about getting girls. It's all about getting money. It's all about me, 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 me. Getting the 20s, it's all about me, 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 right? And, and, and to a certain extent, that can be helpful because that can help project you to where you need to be but at some point right life is not about you anymore life has to be about your legacy life has to be about the people to your right and to your left life and that and i got that in the seal teams man i tell people all the people ask me were you ever scared as a seal i said my only fear fear is good right one but my only fears is as a seal was doing something or not doing something that would lead to the death or serious injury of the man to my right or the man Mm -hmm. to my left highest stakes ever I didn't care about death. Yeah. I could die. I gave up my fear of death the moment I raised my hand to join the military during an act of war, during a time of war. I gave up my, my, my fear of death even more so when I decided to go to SEAL training with dudes dying in SEAL training. God died in my class right in front of me. You know, I, I gave up my fear of death way before I even went on my first op. So at this point, it's not me dying. It's, it's about the people around me. Mm-hmm. And I would say for me, it wasn't until I, was, I turned 26 that I was like, you know what? Life is not about me anymore. Life is about the people around me, and, and, don't, they, and, and don't they say the brain? I might be way off on this, but like the brain develops. develops at like twenty five, twenty six. Yeah, it's like yeah. in that is area. Is it twenty five? I thought it was twenty eight. But you, but it might be. But it's in that it's in that neighborhood, though. Yeah. That's interesting. Continue. Yeah. So, so you know, so many people 
their brains may not have developed. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or, you know, they just can't stop being selfish. Life is still about them. And so when life is still about you, you can't properly parent. You can't, you're not, because you're not going to be a visionary. Like my dad, you have Nigerians, you have people in Nigeria. When they want to become rich, their aspirations are politics. Like, I'll take myself an example. And growing up in the Bronx, yo, when we want to be rich, rise up, what do we look at? For the most part, myself and a lot of guys, guys and girls I grew up, rapping, sports, or hustling. Mm. Right? And Nigeria is different. It's all about, from the time kids are small, Go into politics. Their parents groom them to go into politics because you can go into politics poor and come out a billionaire. Not a millionaire, <laughs> a billionaire. Because Nigeria is very corrupt. Yeah. Because you get a lot of Nigerian senators and, and governors, you know, who they're taking, you know, there was a story out of Nigeria a few years ago uh, when the uh, Nigerian military were trying to fight Boko Haram in the northern part of Nigeria. And I can't remember the name of the state, but the troops had no ammunition, barely had ammunition, guns were all jacked up, didn't have vehicles, didn't have nothing. Why? Because the, the governor of that state received, and I'm just throwing out a random number, I can't remember the exact number received like a hundred million dollars from the from from the federal government hey go fight boko haram by the time that money got to the troops it was like five million dollars yeah, left yeah right and works. so that it, it, even there's a story about um in nigeria of the the oil ministry the, the minister of oil this woman who she was cutting side deals with other countries and ships would just disappear with barrels of oil but she would get she, when she got out of a government she was a billionaire billions right. of dollars right and then she went to london when they um and, and when the nigerian government was like you need to come back here we found out that you stole billions of dollars in oil she was like i'm i, I need to stay in london because i have cancer so she stayed in london right and so a lot of people in nigeria they groom their kids to try and get into politics because if they can get into politics then they could become rich that's their way out that senator um, I don't know if we had the story up there, but the senator of uh, uh, who uh, with the organ harvesting, where he uh, his uh, in, in the UK, him and his wife tried to get there. Oh, the one we looked at earlier. Yeah, they, yeah, this yeah, dude yeah. here earlier. That hey, dude. Keith, I'm not going to try to say that. Sorry. He millionaire. Yeah. He was a senator. He's a senator. He was a he. Well, he was a senator in Nigeria. Came out of politics, a millionaire. Move to the UK. And that's what a lot of Nigerian politicians do. After they've served their time and they've made their millions or billions, they go to the UK or they come to the US. It's sad that you say parents then aspire for their kids to do that, though, because they know inherently what that means if they're aspiring for them to do that. It's not, they're not doing it in an honorable way. No, no. And and so I say that to say there's a a line. There's, There's... I'm going into this field f- field of politics for me because yeah. it's about me versus my dad's story. I'm trying to build this island for them, for my people, so that we can have a place to go do business. And they kill them for it. And they kill them for it. That's the same thing we've seen with parenting. Yes. It's, no, I, I want to stay young. I want to have a good time through my kids. I want to hang out with my kids' friends and all of this other stuff. And it's like, no, dude, it's time for you to pour into your yes. kids pour into your legacy because not the cycle is going to continue and then they're going to be just like you and then that's going to create another generation of jacked up kids which is going to create so it's a crazy cycle man well the other thing that you 
have now that's great mm. that through no fault of your own and yeah. certainly no fault of your mom's own yeah. you didn't have growing up is you and your wife are both there yeah. to be parents to your kid mm-hmm. your dad was taken from you murdered mm-hmm. when you were five yeah and your mom had to be a single mother mm-hmm. so you know you mentioned you guys lost everything when that yeah. happened because yeah. it was taken from him yeah. yep. did you come to the united states like right away yeah we, it was quick one minute we one minute we're in nigeria my mom's like Let's be, we're out. And you went to the Bronx with no Bronx. money. Not, not, as a matter of fact, my mom got to the U.S. She called up an uncle of ours on her side, cousin, her cousin, said, hey, I have no money. Husband just died. Don't have a nickel to my name. Um, can you loan me some money so that that way I could get some food, you know, just something to tie me over until I get a job. He's like, let me call you back in five minutes. Five minutes later, phone rings. Other than the phone was my mom's cousin's wife. She said to my mom, how dare you call up my husband and ask him for money? Who the hell do you think you are? Don't you ever do that again. And then she hung up the phone on my mom. So here my mom had been kicked in losing her, her, her husband. And now she's been kicked again by another family member. And... That was, I have to say, the point in her life where she was like a switch went off in her head, where she was just like, I ain't got nothing. I got to make this happen. Mm-hmm. We had nothing. I, I tell that story just to emphasize the point of we literally had nothing. Where'd you move in the Bronx? Uh, West Bronx, Fordham and Sedgwick. Mm. And... Uh, like I mentioned earlier, my mom did a good job of masking the reality of what had happened. She, you know, she kept our apartment well kept. She had some of my dad's art peppered around the apartment. She would emphasize us, keep your room clean, keep the kitchen clean, all of that stuff. Um, and she she did a good job of hiding a lot of things from us. What kind of jobs did she work? She started out as a teacher at the South Bronx, teaching elementary school. Uh, she would take jobs at museums and art galleries and even playhouses in order to expose us to the arts for free and give us like a, a, a secondary education. Wow. Um, and then she started a creative writing business called First Impressions Writing Service. I'll never forget because that was her thing that she always would tell my brother and I. It's always about your first impression. So she started a writing service. So she would write terms papers for people she would write resumes for people and this is when computers started coming out people didn't really know how to use microsoft and type and all of that and she, she started out with a typewriter and then she migrated to you know typing on computers she would do all of that stuff for people as a, as a side hustle resumes term papers cover letters all of that stuff and uh and she hustled man like she, like she would wake up before my brother and i we had we lived in a 17 story building she would run the steps Couple t- few times running the steps in the bed oh, for, for a workout because she couldn't afford a gym, so she would run wow. up and down, up and down, up and down. Come back, shower, get me and my brother up, get us fed, take us to school, go to her job as a teacher, come back from come back, pick us up. Well, yeah, come back, pick us up, get us home. Well, no, my grandmother would pick us up, so we'd be home by the time she came back. She'd get us fed, uh, work at work another job, and then you know put us down to bed and all that stuff and then she'd work another job and then she'd go to sleep wake up early again do it again and so for her because she was like i need to make it i need to make it. i remember asking her one day i said mom why didn't you ne- why didn't you ever get married you never got married you could my beautiful woman it's like why she's like I, I never wanted to bring any confusion into the house she said because i knew that if 
I could, if you guys would be successful, I don't want to bring anything in the house that would, that would, um, that would hurt your chances of being successful or would drive you down the wrong path. Cause she said, if you could be successful, then I will have made it. Everything will be all right. And so I didn't want to bring, that's why I didn't want to bring anybody else into, into this house or into, I didn't want to get in a relationship because her priority was us. And that's why she worked so hard. That's why she did all of the things that she did. And fast forward, it wasn't until I was about eight years old that I began to really realize the situation we were in because I would go to the rent office with my mom and, and now I understood what she was doing. She was, Even at eight. She was young. eight. Yeah, she was eight, but I was realizing, okay, she's asking for extra time to pay the rent. Yeah. When I was younger, I didn't really understand the conversation she was having with the guy at the rent office or the woman at the rent office. So I began to do stuff like that. Then my mom would get my brother and I borrow ivory soap and say, hey, I, I can't afford to go down and do laundry. And, you know, we, I don't have coins, money to do it. Wash it, you know, here's ivory soap, wash your underwears and socks in the sink, dry them out, hang them up over the, the shower pole. Um, you know, uh, there were times she didn't have enough food to feed herself. She had just enough food to feed my brother and I. She would put the food on the table. We would look at her mom, why don't you eat it? Don't worry about me, I'm okay. And she would just watch us eat. And I remember one time my mom made something with onions as a kid. I hated onions. I hated onions with a passion. And I remember it was like these, she had diced the onions. So they were like these cubes and they was like a little slippery. And I remember spinning them out of my mouth around the chicken sauce, whatever that she made. And she slapped me in the back of my head and I didn't understand why she was so angry. But now I do now because it was like, she's not eating, you know what mm. I mean? And so I began to recognize some of those things and then going out in, 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 into the streets of the Bronx, you know what I mean? And going to the basketball court and uh, going into the uh, the local bodegas and seeing the mafia guys, you know, the, this is in the early 90s, the mafia guys and with the big collars and, and going in and, and getting taxes from the Dominican store owners. And there was a guy in my building uh, who was in, who we knew was was in, his name was Jimmy. He had a spot called Jimmy's Cafe, and we knew that he was connected with the mob, and the mob was doing stuff at Jimmy's Cafe, and that dude disappeared, never found his body. To this day, they don't know what happened to him, but we, but the police and everybody knows that he was tied in with the, with the mafia. Um, and so I began to see all of these things, and I got beat up really bad when I was eight years old by a guy who just got released from prison. Um, he was at like eight? 30, yep, at eight. I was 35. He was 35, just got released from prison, a 19-year-old, and a kid who was my age. I was playing basketball in a basketball court DeVoe Park which is a crazy dangerous park and I started talking junk to this kid we playing basketball you know what I mean and he's t talking junk to me when he's winning so I'm talking junk back to him when I'm winning and and it got to a point where he didn't like it and, and he told me to shut up I said no I said what are you gonna do and he said I'm gonna go get my brother and I said go get him and he comes back and you know five minutes later you know I look across the street from the park and there's three people coming across the street and a 19 year old beat the shit out of you. 19 year old 35 year old and eight year old and 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 slammed me on the concrete yep slammed me on the concrete punched me in the face um held me down so the kid could spit on me yeah man and uh so it was all of those things that allowed me to realize I'm not in I'm not in Kansas anymore. And then the drug the, the, the crackheads in the park. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like mom was like, oh, they're just sick. But like my grandmother, you know, I had an uncle who was a was a crack addict. You know what I mean? And she's like, oh, he's just he's just sick. But now I'm beginning to see, oh, he wasn't sick. These dudes in the park ain't sick. They crackheads. You know what I'm saying? But you're getting a feel for this at a really young age. Yeah, I mean, man. eight years old. To, yeah, I, I don't even remember when I was eight yeah. years old. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you would you could pick up on these things yeah that's, that's pretty impressive yeah. but it's also i can't imagine having my head 
filled with all that information, these yeah. realities yeah. of, you know, let's call it what it is, the cold world. Yeah. In that yeah. way. Eight, nine, I remember walking to school. I'll never forget, I was walking to, I was in mid, I might say, I'm about 11 years old, so I think I was getting ready to go into middle school and coming back, actually walking from school and seeing seeing these dudes jumping and beating up a kid, man. You know, a kid that was 12 years old, teenagers beating him up, slaying you wanting to get involved, but like just feeling helpless because it's like, I'm a kid, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? You know, there was a girl in my uh, my brother's class named Dina. Um, Her story, I mean, if you just Google Dina, the Bronx, murder, whatever, um, she was one of my brother's friends, Dina, I can't remember her last name, Bronx, um, I think Sedgwick Avenue murder. Like Sedgwick that. Avenue murder? Yeah, just put Dina D E no it's D E E N A. D E E N A, not yeah. D I. D E E N A Bronx murders. Sedgwick. Bronx girl fatally shot in apartment laundry room. Ninety five. Yeah, there it is. You know what I'm saying? That was my brother's friend. You know what I mean? And the crazy thing, she was sweet girl. Sweet girl, you know what I mean? Um she was thirteen in my brother's class. My brother goes to class one day. She's not there. Everybody's crying. Well, she, she got murdered. Dude wanted to have sex with her. Oh, she wouldn't have sex with him. Thirteen. He shot in the face. Grown man shot in the face, killed her. And so, um, and as a matter of fact, I remember walking my cousin home from school. Uh, he was uh, hanging out in our park because I like that's right across the street from where I grew up. I grew up on Sedgwick, Fordham and Sedgwick, and so I was walking my cousin home and with my other older cousin and my brother one day one night and right in front of that building was a shootout and it was like a drive-by shootout blah, blah, blah. so we're running back you know to to my mom's house in the middle of you know bullets flying so that was my environment and uh you know unfortunately i became a product of that environment yeah. because that was all i saw you know people say why don't why, don't, why can't why aren't there more seals and more doctors and all of these coming out of the Bronx, it's like because that's we're not exposed to that. Yeah, you know what I mean. I wasn't exposed to that. Um, How early did this happen when you started running with some of the bad crowd? I went. You know, I was never a run with the bad crowd kind of guy. I was more of a let's get money type of guy. Mm. <laughs> For me, it was all about I'm gonna get this money. So I did little things like I was steal from my mom. Then that progressed to the little money she had. I would go to stores, local bodegas, and steal chips. You'd steal and, from your mom. Yeah. Man, man. As a matter of fact, I tell the story in my book, but I stole the engagement ring that my mom gave my dad. She cherished that thing. What made you do that? Because it seemed like you had such love for your mom and, and respect for her. I was duplicit. I want, I did love my mom, but I loved money. I didn't have, and I think it, what, what it all comes back to is the lack of affirmation from a father. I tell people all the time that I think that every, I believe that every boy needs a father to affirm him and to teach him how to be a man. And every girl needs a father to affirm her and to teach her how to be loved by men. And when a child doesn't have that, a child will just unconsciously seek out that af- affirmation. That affirmation is as powerful as love. It's as powerful. So that affirmation that I was seeking was as powerful as the love that my mom was giving me. Mm-hmm. But my mom couldn't be a father. She couldn't be the one that says, hey, good job, son. I'm here for you, son. I got that from my mom, but a boy needs to hear that from his father. And uh, and because I didn't have a father to do that, I sought that in things that would acquire that for me. In money. 
and money. And because what happens when you get the money? It was, it was the locks back in the day. Money, power, respect, yeah. right? What happens when you get the money? Then you get the power. You get the power. Then people will respect you. And what 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 does that mean? People will affirm you. Oh, you the man. Oh, look, you got the new sneakers. Oh, you got shorty. Oh, you got this that. You know what I mean? And it's and and, and again, that's the culture though that we're raised in. In, in in the 90s even now you see a lot of inner cities you know chicago you know what i mean bronx brooklyn south side of chicago. It's like the culture is like do x y and z this is what a man is you know what i mean punch them in the face if they disrespect you yeah you know you see these senseless murders people just getting shot and killed for over nothing like oh because you did because you said something or you put out a rap song, disrespect, I'm going to come find you and murder you and then now I'm going to go to prison for the rest of my life? It, it all, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, you can't know it unless you lived it, yeah. first of all. Yeah. I mean, guys like me can hear about it and whatever from you, but there is something, there, there's a common thread when yeah. I talk with guys who are from the hard environment, like, yeah. like, like you were, there, there's, it's a, it all comes back to like like when I have Wally Green in here, he was talking about it. Like yeah. it's it's pride and respect, yeah. and the way that that is shown is just in in many cases bastardized in environments yeah. where there's poverty. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. But again, that pride and respect, the substratum of it that everybody is seeking is that affirmation. Because at the end of the day, when you look at the single parent rate in the inner cities, you know it's like what seventy, eighty percent in some places. No fathers in the home. Yep. And in those same places with no fathers are in the home, 70, 80%, what's the crime rate? High. What's the what's the teenage pregnancy rate? High. What's the high school dropout rate? High. There you go. Yeah. Absence of a father. And so that's why I did the things that I did. Yeah, my mom loved me, but I wanted something that I couldn't get from a father. Yeah. And so, yeah, man, that progressed to selling drugs. And How young did you sell drugs? I started selling drugs when I was like maybe 14, 15, mm. 16. And then that progressed to running high-level scams, man, where I was out there just hustling cell phones. You know, cell phones became the a very – became nobody really used phones, cell phones back in the day. Only like the rich, you know, Wall Street brokers had the big brick phones. But then the Nokia phone came out, and then you started getting – Motorola StarTech phones started coming out. And so I was able to get a gig at a, a cell phone company. I won't mention the company's name. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I got a job there because a guy put me on at, uh, as to how to hustle phones, essentially – you know activate get activate three lines of credit three cell phone lines on one person's uh credit uh get the data activate three on one yeah so back in the day when cell phones started popping up i don't know if you remember they had the 29.99 plans 29.99 oh yeah i keep forgetting you thirty. i'm I'm thinking all right so back so back around 2000 2001 cell phones started to become a thing and uh and and the plan started out 29.99 a month for 30 dollars okay uh if you go if you uh 20 and you would get sorry 29 for 30 minutes excuse me i said 30 dollars 29.99 a month for 30 minutes where the cell phone companies would make their money was on the overage charges because who's going who's going who's going to just, just talk for 30 minutes on a cell phone right. when cell phone is becoming like the primary means of communication right and so these companies weren't selling the phones per se they were selling the plans mm. right and so all pretty much all cell phone companies at the time and uh and so 
the way we would get people, get clients, is we we pitch them a phone and say, all right, if you buy this phone, got to run your credit. You got good credit, you can get this phone. If you got even better credit, then you can get three phones. All you got to do is pay $30 a month. Now, with some phones, like with the more high-end phones, like when you start getting to the start, start the uh, Motorola Tic Tac phone that looked like a little Tic Tac. Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. keep forgetting. You know, no idea. <laughs> but, <laughs> you get the, t- the Motorola two-way time pages. Remember the time port, silver and gray? Nope. Sorry, silver and black. Okay, yeah, that was Sorry. All right, anyway. Uh, uh, so long story short, I would get people's date of birth, social, name, and then I would activate a phone. more cases three phones on that one person's line of credit i would then go Mm. sell that phone those three phones to drug dealers for for three to five hundred sometimes eight hundred dollars depending on the style of the phone the drug dealers like the phones because they would stay on for 90 days first 30 days you wouldn't get a bill at the 30 day mark after you pass the 30 day mark then a bill would come in oh has had uh Sorry, at the 30-day mark, the bill will come in. You had until the 60-day mark to pay the bill. If it wasn't paid by the 90-day mark, the phone would cut off. And so drug dealers like the phones because... They're burner phones. They're burner phones. They stay on for 90 days, cut off, come back to me, get a new phone, and guess what? It's unlimited plan. I was doing unlimited cell phone minutes before (laughs) it wasn't even unlimited plans, right? Yeah. And so I was making a lot of money doing that. That was my cell phone hustle. And... uh, that's how I get. That's that's when I got into the music business. I was uh, essentially laundering the money through the through through a record company I started called Eighth Wonder Entertainment. How old are you when you started that? I'm eighteen, nineteen. Tw- okay. You know, I yeah, I'm 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 seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Were you an aspiring rapper at the time? Or? I, I I wanted to be like P Diddy and Dame Dash. Mm. So um, Brad knows because I got this compilation album on my. I keep the compilation album that we were able to make. Uh, on my office desk as a reminder of where I came from, and mm. it's a picture of me and, and the artist that we had signed to the record company. And so I was, I was just trying to be P Diddy. I, I wanted to, I, I wasn't the rapper. I wanted to be the guy that you know, the, behind the business side of things. I, and so I wanted to do what Dame Dash and Jay Z did, where they were use, they used a drug game to help get them set up in the music game, and then they. It did work out game, and it worked out for them. So say. that was my exit plan, and yeah. so you know that's where I was spending the money. I was spending the money recording at, stu- at studios, and were you going you know. to school during all this? Yeah, or were you, yeah, I was were in you, school. Were you cutting school? No, all I was going to school because that was my way to keep my mom off my back. Uh, I was, that's, so that's she how thought I, everything was chameleon. All good. That's how I was becoming chameleon because you know if I'm I'm in school and my mom's not getting truancy letters and I'm doing fairly good and I'm grad graduating gotcha. to the next grade, then she's off my back. You know, she thinks I got a job at a sneaker store wherever. I had a whole sneaker hustle as well. That was another thing. I was, a, <laughs> I was working at a sneaker store called Athlete's Foot. And, you know, um, I, long story I remember short. Athlete's Foot. Yeah, man. Long story short. Um, one day a guy came in and he was in a rush. And and he said, hey, I need a pair of sneakers right now. I got to get to a meeting. And I ran in. He looked at the wall, picked out sneakers. I ran and got them, and he just threw me cash and said, "Don't worry about it. Just, just charge me. You know, you know, overcharge me, whatever the case may be. I don't need to change." And he runs out, and that's when I got the idea. Oh, I could do this, and I took his sneakers and I put them in the um uh, the box, and I put that box in the defect section because we had and and in our warehouse we had a defect section, and like every like. Four or six months, like somebody would come from the main warehouse and come just, they wouldn't even look in the boxes. They would just come, grab the boxes of defective shoes and take them. 
And so I was I was selling I wouldn't do I wasn't doing that for every person. I was smart about it, but kids in my high school would be like, yo, I want the new Jordans, I want the new pennies, I want the new whatever. I'd be like, I got you. Give me, you know, give me if the sneaker costs $120, be like, give me a hundred hundred racks or give me give me ninety dollars. They give me the cash, come back next day, boom, here's your sneakers. Oh my God. So I so I I, I was doing the drugs, I was doing the sneakers, then I was doing the cell phones. True businessman. True businessman. All the you way around. I mean? Was your mom and, talking about college during this whole time though? Because you're doing pretty well in school. Like what was I was I wasn't doing well. I was doing good enough to graduate to the next grade. God I wasn't doing like my brother. So my brother was different. My brother graduated high school in three years. Um, he got his master. He got he graduated college in three. He got a full ride academic scholarship to Syracuse yeah. University. He studied wow. engineering there, and then he he got his master's in uh, computer science engineering in one year. Wow. So he was the he was the brains. You know what I mean? I was the one that wanted to be in the streets, and so um um yes, I I did good enough to get to the next grade. And that was enough to kind of keep my mom off my back. And then I graduated high school. And once I graduated high school, I didn't want to go to college. Mm. I did not want to go to college. I wanted to be a music mogul. That's what I wanted. <laughs> Seriously, that's yeah. what I wanted. Like, like to me, going to college was like beneath me. That was like below me. That's like again, I'm I'm a kid. I'm a street You're kid. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah but not just an entrepreneur. You. I'm a street kid. I want the I want the bands. I want the jewelry. Yes. I want. You don't get that going to college. You get that being in the streets. You get the girls by hustling and doing music. That's what I wanted because I was trying to get that affirmation I didn't get from my father. At what point, like how old were you when you started to realize what really happened to your father? Uh, as far as like like the whole, cons- you know, what like the whole setup and all of that stuff? Yeah. That wasn't until I was in the military. That wasn't until... So at no point, hold on a second. Yeah. So you were five, just for yeah, people, yeah, if, yeah. We, we talked about that a half hour ago or so or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you were five when you find out you yeah. go back to playing with your toys because yeah. you don't even know the difference. Oh, you mean what happened as far as my dad's death? No, no, no. Yeah. I'm saying, like, at what age do you start to realize, oh, dad's gone? It wasn't just a business trip. Like, he really is dead. Yeah. He's not going. I wonder what happened there. And then when did you figure? It sounds like you're saying oh, you didn't I would figure say, it out I would say, the military. Well, as far as like when I finally realized he was dead, like. I'd probably say like months, six months, but I still didn't really understand death. It sure. was like a like one of those w- weird gradual transitions, right? Yes. Like he's gone and I'm still young. And then finally, like I realized he's gone and it doesn't really hit me. It wasn't until I was about eight that it hurt. Yeah. That it affected me. Now, as far as like what happened with all the corruption and stuff around his situation, I didn't full. My mom would tell me things here and there as a kid. I mean, I, she knew, obviously. Oh, she knew. Yeah, because yeah, I would ask my mom. I was like, are we going to ever get the island? Are we going to ever get our dad's money? And she would always say, in Nigeria, don't hold your breath. Yeah. She's like, don't hold your breath at all. You know what I mean? Um, but it wasn't until later, you know, in talking to my brother, uh, my half-brother, because my dad was married years before he married my mom, and I got a half-brother who was a lawyer in the UK, and then he went back down to Nigeria after my dad's death to try to fight them. He's been, I mean, as a matter of fact, he's been on the case for almost 40 years. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they offered about four or five years ago, uh, the government offered him $8 million. To settle. To settle. My brother said no, because, my, because again, it was my dad spent 8 million pounds he spent eight million pounds in the seventies, just for inflation, plus interest, plus the money that my dad spent to dredge the foreshore to create the island, plus the contracts he signed, plus the construction that he already, you know, money that he had put up. So, but, but is your half brother worried about 
his safety. Like he's going after the government here, and maybe in a public way, if he's going after him legally for this long. Well, he goes back and forth between the UK and Nigeria. Yeah, that wouldn't make me feel better. But I know, lie. I know. But he, I mean, it's his legacy. It's his. It's he's, yeah. he's trying to get it back. You I mean, know that's I mean? awesome. I'm, I'm not. But at the same time, I think that the like, so in '87 when he started, they didn't pay much attention to him. Because he's like, here's this guy who was my bro- half-brother who was born in Nigeria. Like, when he was like six, he was sent to boarding school in London. And he was educated in London. And then now he's coming back. He's a Yankee. He's not a threat to them. He's not a threat to the night. They're like, oh, here's this, this, yeah. this boy. He's a UK boy. You right. know what I mean? And it's like, pay him no mind. Right? So... I think there's still some of that where to them it's like, ah, oh, you are not really a threat to us. Mm. Go play with your toys, right? As a matter of fact, um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that there was a whole uh, N- there was an NSARS movement and and in Nigeria. If you Google NSARS, E N D S A R S, Nigeria, just Google N D E N D SARS and then Nigeria, something like that. And so, SARS. SARS now, right? Okay. So that was like, there were riots. It was crazy. Like, they were, this was what year was that? 2020, okay? 2020. Yeah, yeah. Right? October 2020. Yeah. 2020 was an interesting year for cops around the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It got crazy out there, right? <laughs> cops and governments. And so yeah. the courthouse in Lagos, where my dad's case has been for like the last 30, 40 years, rioters say this in quotes air quotes they go into the courthouse they find the files of my dad's case and they burn just those files We're talking 30 years plants, of documentation plants and then the, the 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 courthouse says well they rioters came in and burnt out yeah burnt down our how convenient and then you go in and check and it's like they only burnt the, the case files yeah. for my dad's case right that is sketchy so that's why with my brother it's like you know he's not he i think the sense is they're not going to do anything to him because they don't see him as a threat i think Mm -hmm. they see me more as a threat than they see my my brother as a threat if anything especially with that social media post and how the story's starting to come out especially my background and you know and and, continue to get more and more attention to in your post career yep and then my book's coming my book came out and now it's about to be a movie so more people are gonna know the story you know every day i'm getting nigerians that are like i got your back this is this corruption has been out of control it needs to stop what do you need got your back so i think as as my story gets out there more and more and more you know i'm more of a threat to them than my brother is is there because again, like you don't find this out till years and years later. Mm-hmm. So it, in a way, I don't know. I can't relate to that. I never yeah. had something happen to me like that. Thank yeah. God. But you know, when you're molded by it, right when it happens with something like that, like yeah. that rage lives inside of you your whole life. But in a lot of ways, you you didn't have that yeah. for 15 years yeah. or whatever. So is there? I, I don't I don't want to ask this question the wrong way. But yeah. is there a little bit of like a I don't want to say displacement from it, but like you can't you can't try to relive it like it just happened yesterday and it's like, oh my god, I can't believe this this is really fucked up. Like if I can change it and expose it, I will, but it's not like this fresh, like just seeing red all the time. No, Do you understand not, what I'm asking? Yeah, no, you know what? Yeah, I totally understand. I think it's the opposite. I'm grateful for it, man. Mm. Like, <laughs> bro, I'm so grateful for the past that I had and how things transpired. Cause I would not 
be where I am today without that story. Yeah. At all. Like, you know, what they meant to for harm to harm me was turned around for good. Because yes, it was hard. Yes, it sucked. Yes, we lost dude. If I win that case, I'll be a billionaire tomorrow. Mm. So yes, I lost billions of dollars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or what could have been billions of dollars. But I want to be who I am. I want to have had the path. I want to have had the hard upbringing in the Bronx. And I want to have, you know, had to be snuck into the Navy to freaking and become. I want to have made it through SEAL. I'm, I'm in SEAL training, bro. And it's like a kick in the nuts. Oh, yeah. And I'm just like, yo, I, like, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, the cold was horrible. The cold was the hardest part of it. And, and you know, and the ocean swims was the worst part of it, were the worst part of it for me. But at the end of the day, I'm like, I could take the beatings. I could take the torment. I could take the name calling. I could take the mental games because mm. I had already been, my mind had already been strengthened through my upbringing, through the, through the adverse effort. When I was a kid, I remember the older kids would make us, they would get chalk. And draw all my friends remember this. I'm sure they laughing when they hear this part. They would draw a boxing ring with chalk, and and they would pick who was gonna fight in a boxing ring, and you had to, and it, but it was slap boxing fights, and we would be slap boxing fights, and we'd just be fighting each other, and like that that toughens you up. I'm not saying that that's no, I understand kids exactly be raised, but it's yeah. like when you have that type of environment, you playing two hand touch football on concrete, you getting pushed down to the concrete and bleeding, and then you get back up, and it's just normal for you to keep going. You learn, you know what I mean? It's just like yeah. that hardens you. You know what I'm saying? So by the time I got to this program called Seal Train, I went through Hell Week. I made it through Hell Week two times. How, how did you even get there? Like, yeah. like, how did you end up? We, we, we skipped that part. How did yeah. you end up at the military? So I ended up. Selling the guy a drug dealer, um, <laughs> like twenty phones. It's a lot more to the story. It's all in my book, man. It's a good start, right yeah, there. Yeah, it's a lot. I sold him twenty phones. They were supposed to, they cut off in two weeks. Mm. And initially, I didn't want to sell him the twenty phones because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to because he he came to me. He wanted to do phones in bulk, and I said no. And he kind of you know manipulated me or talked me into it. And so I sold him a bulk, all good. Sold him another bulk, all good. Sold him another bulk. All those phones cut off in like two weeks. He ain't happy now. He ain't happy because what I found out he was doing, instead of dispersing them to his crew, he was flipping the phones. Mm. Because he's, you know, being a drug dealer in the Bronx, in New York City, there's one on every corner. It's hot. It's a lot of risk. It's less risky to, you know, hustle. Nobody really understands how to, the, the laws and the systems around cell phones. And so how can you get prosecuted? And this seems like a safe bet where you can make a lot of money. It's less risky. Same thing with human trafficking, especially organ harvesting. Traffickers are beginning to realize that it's a lot less risky to do organ harvesting than it is to to to, to traffic because there's more of a paper trail with trafficking because you're sending a victim out and somebody could come wrap them up at any time then you get exposed organ harvesting you organ somebody harvest somebody's body your organs burn them up nobody knows anything you pull somebody from one part of the globe like i did in the short film put them in another part of the globe nobody in that other part of the globe knows where they are nobody in the globe they came part of the globe they were is going to expect that they're going to be in venezuela same reason why those those traffickers took that girl from texas and moved her to oklahoma You know what I mean? So, <laughs> sorry, I know I went down a no, tangent. No, unfortunately, it I, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, I say all that to say, um, he was trying to move differently. I sold him these phones. They cut off early. He came. Not only was my life threatened, my mom's life was indirectly threatened. 
because it was like he, he oh, was right, he, right. His, he's his, pissed. He's pissed. Yeah, you know, we're talking a lot of money. Gave him his money back that night. Good chunk of the money back that night. Gave him the rest back the next day, and then that was my wake up call. That was my. How yo, old are you? I'm 19. This, this is December 2001. So high school's over. High school's over. You're still doing entrepreneurial street yep, scams. Yep. Yep. And you have a wake-up call. Yep. How does that wake-up call translate into, I'm going to go join the so, Marines? So for six months, well, for the first two months, I, I went hard to try and get a label deal. I went. I had a meeting at Def Jam with Kevin Lyles, oh. sat in his office, played him the CD. He stopped halfway through, was like, you want to hear something better? I was like, as soon as he said that, my head dropped because I'm like, dang, that means I ain't getting a deal. And then he put in a, a CD. Kanye. <laughs> Joe Buttons. Oh, shit. He's like, I got this new dude just signed him. He hasn't come out yet. Here's his first song. This is what you need to be like. He plays a song. And then at the end, he's like, this is the type of music I want. Mm. And then I, that, that kind of ended my, my, my uh, career. Joe Buttons ended my, my, my uh, music career. And then, you know, one day in June of 2002, long story short, I feel something tell me you need to get out of here and the way out is the military. And years earlier, uh, when I was 15, I saw a movie called Bad Boys. That was that great movie. Fantastic movie. Classic. Movie. That was the first time I saw two black men who, you know, looked like me and they were heroes, you know, mm. and that planted a seed in my mind that essentially said you could be something other than a drug dealer, rapper, or athlete. You could still maintain who you are, but be a hero. You don't have to do the things you do. It planted the small inception in my mind. And then about two years later, another movie came out called The Rock. Oh, yeah. And that was the first time I saw or heard of Navy SEALs. And that's when I was like, yo, <laughs> if I ever turn my life around, I'm not saying I will, but if I ever turn my life around, I would do that. Mm. And so, you know, fast forward to June of 2002 when I felt something say, you need to get out of You need to join the military. Um, that's when I said, screw it. Let me see. Let me, you know, I ain't got nothing else to go on for me. My brother's in college at this point. I'm 19, about to turn 20, living in my mom's apartment. My life had not amounted to anything. Why not? So I ran down the street I grew up on, went into the Marine recruiter's office first, sat there for like 15 minutes. Nobody showed up. There was coffee on the desk, but nobody showed up. Left. Went a couple doors down to the Navy recruiter's office. A beautiful um, Navy recruiter in there by the name of Tiana Nadine Reyes. And, uh, in my mind, I'm thinking not only am I getting the Navy, but I'm about to make her my girlfriend. But she saw, <laughs> she saw through all my stupidness because she was from the Bronx. She served and uh, joined from the Bronx, served in the fleet, then came back to kind of give back to people in the Bronx and uh, had me do a practice ASVAP test, passed that to get past score high enough to get the Navy, but then score high enough to be a SEAL. And then she ran my background, ran my background, found I had two warrants out for my arrest. I had a warrant here in New Jersey, where we at, and I had a warrant in New York. And when she said that- For the I, phone stuff, or? That's, that's, what I, that's what I was about to, so I got up as soon as she said that, I ran, because that's what I thought it was for. I was like, oh my God, because there were people before I left, because I left, not only did I leave, stop doing what I was doing, after that had happened with the drug dealer, I also left the company because I was scared that I, because the phones cut off early, I thought that I was going to get prosecuted because they were people getting caught mm, yeah, and yeah, yeah. prosecuted for Absolutely. federal crime. And, uh, and so I, uh, I, uh, um, that's what I thought it was for. 
And uh, she stopped me at the door right before I got there. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting out of here. She said, you got a suit? I said, no. She said, you got nice shirts, some nice pants. I was like, sure, I'm sure I could find something. She said, uh, come back tomorrow. I said, for what? She said, come back tomorrow. Just come back. Stop being stupid and listen to me. And, you know, growing up in the streets of the Bronx, I tell people this all the time. You got to learn how to read people, especially when you're doing the kind of stuff I was doing. It means the difference between life and death. And that would this would all serve me well when I got into human intelligence in the teens because I, you know, I could tell when somebody was a source was my enemy or whether a source wanted to give me some information, but they were holding back or whether a source was a double agent just trying, but I was able to read that because I grew up around these type of characters my whole life where I had to read people and I didn't know what she was going to do. But from what I read from her reaction and having had been with her for an hour or so, I knew that it would be good. So I came back the next day. She was in her dress uniform. She drove me down here to Jersey. Don't worry about about the warrants <laughs> yeah yeah she, yeah she drove me down to jersey put me in front of the judge advocating on my behalf she was like listen this kid's made mistakes but he still has potential um can't join the military I, you know what a what a criminal record or warrants uh 9-11 just happened by the way judge i was and i was leaving that out here because yeah. you're in new york i'm in new york i, I mean, saw the twin towers come down no shit. I saw the Twin Towers come down. I went and my mom woke me up and she was, when when it all happened, when the first plane hit the building, she was like, oh my God, we on the attack. And, you know, I heard like fire trucks and sirens going off all around the neighborhood, just nonstop going around the neighborhood, cars flying, driving back and forth. And uh, um, this girl who I was dating at the time, she called me up. She was like, come here. So I went, I went to her building, went to the roof and we watched from the roof. Um, the Twin Towers come down and she was she went to watch because her cousin worked the windows of the world. Oh, my God. Yeah. Single mom worked the windows of the world as a was waitress. She, was she? She was. They never found her. Oh, of course. Yeah. Never found that her. That was the top floors. No yeah. one. No one survived. Up yeah. There. They never found her. And so. Um, so, yeah. So, so went to that first courthouse. That judge clear, clear my record. Just had to clear my record. Um just had to pay like a court fee or fine or whatever. Then she took me to New York. Nice the New judge. York judge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, she advocated. She put in the work. She was like, yo, she had on a dress uniform, everything. Yeah. And good uh, for her and good for him though, too. Yeah, yeah. man. And uh took me to the judge in New York. The courthouse was blocks away from ground zero. And here's oh, a and this is right at oh my God. Yeah, this is uh they yeah, still June, doing cleanup. This is June, June 2002. 02. Yeah. yeah. You can actually remember the movie, what was it, twenty five hours? By Spike Lee, Ed Norton's in it. Ah, uh, Tony yeah, Goose, Sarah Goose. Okay, yeah, I, well. never, I know, I, I heard of it, but I never saw it. Yeah, it's yeah. a little. It's like a. He filmed it right after. Oh, okay, and so th they show it mm. like you see it. Yeah, yeah. From yeah. I, it wasn't in Brookfield Place, but they have a scene where it's right above. Yeah, yeah. Ground Zero, and I, I don't know that movie. It's it's a obviously fictional movie that yeah, had yeah. a very real thing around it but when people look at that and you realize like oh my god they were filming this like that's yeah. what you were seeing i mean yeah. i get emotional going to that spot today yeah, man. Yeah, after man. that yeah how it looked yeah. literally ground yeah. zero just rub i mean yeah. i can't even fathom that yeah and here's a crazy thing the architect of the twin towers was my dad's friend and oh, that's he, right. he designed he designed, yep, and my dad was on the board, and he designed the Twin Towers that was supposed to stand in the center of Lagoon City. Oh, my God. And here I'm at, at the courthouse, blocks away from where Ground Zero was, and this woman's standing in front of the judge like, yo, get this guy a chance. That's some divine... <laughs> can't make that up yeah you can't you know make that up man so and yeah man she's and the judge was like all right 
expunge your record and uh, paid the court funds, court fees, whatever it was. And then she went a step further, fudged the paperwork, sneaked me into the Navy. And that's how I got in. So I tell people all the time, you know, I'm, I'm patriotic now. I wasn't, I wasn't then. As a matter of fact, I didn't want to join. Like, I hated the military. I hated the police. You know what I mean? I saw a lot of stuff happening. I got, you know, just, you know, and uh, uh, I associated anybody in the uniform as the police, whether you were Marine, Navy, paramedic, whatever. Um, and so that was not a patriotic decision. That was a life or death decision. That mm. for me was like, if I don't leave the Bronx, I'm going to end up dead or in prison. And this woman gave me this opportunity. She died two years after that too of an oh auto, autoimmune disease. Yeah, man. And oh so, God. yeah. And so, yeah, man, that was, uh, that was how I got in the Navy, man. So you don't go to the SEALs first though. What, yeah. what, what did you do at the, at the beginning of uh, your service? Went to boot camp. Um, after boot camp, went to my first, went to a school, which, cause I was in Corman. Corman is like mm. a Navy medic. And then from there I went to, uh, uh Naval hospital camp Pendleton. And went to what? Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton. So I was stationed at the hospital as a corpsman. Oh, yeah. gotcha. So I worked in, like, interestingly, I worked in a family practice cr- clinic, which is crazy because my wife, when I met her, she was in residency as a family practice doctor. She's a family practice doctor now, but I saw I was working with residents, uh, family <laughs> practice resident doctors, and, you know, checking in babies, doing vital signs, all that stuff. And when I got there, I told my LPO, which is the leading petty officer, like a supervisor, I said, hey, is there any way I could change my schedule so that I could train because I'm trying to be a SEAL or trying to go to SEAL training? And she said, sure. So um, I worked for the morning clinic for four hours, and then I had four hours off in the afternoon to train, like whatever training I wanted to do, I had four hours, and then I would come back to the clinic mm. and work four hours, uh, the, the night clinic. So I'd work until essentially the clinic was shut down. And well, how, how long were you doing that? For a year. For a year. And yeah. then you reapplied to the SEALs. No, I reapplied. So I started training as soon as I got there, as soon as she gave me that four-hour block. Six months later, I qualified. So six months later. I oh, so with, right away. So within, yeah, within that six months, I learned how to swim, good enough to pass the screener. I, uh, I uh, got my ASVAP. I had to retake the ASVAP. So what, I got, what's that? ASVAP? ASVAP is like the SAT. Okay. So um, you got to score really high to get into special programs, whether it's, whether it's BUDS or EOD. You can't be an idiot. What goes into that test? Like math and reading, it's, like an SAT? Yeah, it's, similar? It's, it's, it's literally the SAT, a military version of SAT, but then they have like some mechanical, like comprehension stuff in there as right. well, and uh, electrical stuff on there as well. But a lot of it is reading comprehension, math, you know, algebra, all the stuff that you do, you do in, the, in the SAT because they want to kind of gauge your IQ to determine what job you get in the Navy because they don't want somebody who's an idiot being a nuke working on a nuclear submarine. You <laughs> yeah. Know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. In order that that's the job in the Navy where you have to high have the highest have the like pretty much the highest ASVAP score or like near perfect ASVAP score in order to qualify as a nuke. We call them nukes in the Navy because mm. they work on the nuclear reactors on subs and ships. And so um and then like special programs kind of come after that. And uh, so, yeah, so I had, I retook the ASVAP, scored high enough to get into buds, and then I had packed on the weight, man. You know, went from not being able to do one pull-up to being able to do 30 pull-ups, not being able to do 
10 push-ups to or 20 push-ups to being able to do 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, and all the stuff that you have to do for the screener. And then uh, went to Bud's. Um, so I checked in January 2003 to Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, qualified in J- July of 2003, and then was in Bud's in January 2004. Quick. Yeah, I put how, in the work. And how long is Bud's again? It's six months. Right. So it's uh, it's six months. First eight weeks, um, eight weeks is um, first phase. So that's just like where they just hammer you, log PT, serve torture. I mean, it's just nonstop. They were trying to get guys to quit, and then in that eight weeks, I think the third week is Hell Week. So Hell Week is where they keep you up for six days. Um, pretty much throw everything at you make you do everything that you've been doing but but no sleep mm. and they keep you wet the whole time when did someone die in front of you uh that was like the week before hell week so we were on a conditioning run yeah. we were on a conditioning run it was brutal the condition runs in soft sand it's it was it's just it's just a kick in the nuts because you got to keep up and if you don't keep up then you get put in what's called the goon squad so that means that like after the run or maybe in between the run, if you're too far back, then you got you get hammered, like run to the surf, get wet, do push ups, up and down a burn, boom, 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 like and guys quit because they're just like, Oh, this is random because now you gotta run soaking wet and sandy, mm. which makes it even worse. And so um um we were in the goon we had we at the end of the conditioning run, getting hammered in the goon squad, and this dude's heart just gave up. Ugh. Rob Vetter. So he was a former, he was a SWIT guy. So he was a- Wait, a SWIT guy? So yeah, so, so Navy has two special operations programs, SEALs and SWIC. So SWIC is a, uh, hmm. um, I forgot what it stands for, but Special Warfare Combat Crewman. Okay. And so they essentially, I think they evolved out of uh, the Vietnam War. So they're essentially transport, right? Um, they're, yeah, you got it right. Combat yeah. craft crewman. Yep. Got so, it. So they're, they're masters of the sea and- and as it relates to insertion, extraction, they don't just work with SEALs. They work with other special operations groups that operate on the water so as, as, as it relates to, like, inserting them and extracting them and providing fire support, all that kind of stuff. Because they got the, the big mini guns and on, on there, and they got all kinds of other tricked-out guns, big guns on their cannons and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, he was a former SWIT guy, and pff, heart gave out. And... Uh, yeah, man. I remember that was the first funeral I went to in my entire life. Like the, um, we started trying to provide me and like a couple other corpsmen tried to provide CPR on him, and then the class, the 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 buds medic came up, and he continued. He was able to get a pulse, get him back, but he had been out for so long by the time they got him to the hospital that he was mm-hmm. pretty much a vegetable. He was on life support. Um, he was on life support for like a a week. And then, or like maybe three or four days, and then his wife decided, you know, there's nothing. Doctor said there's nothing. There's no coming back. So they pulled the plug. And then that next week, that was the first funeral I ever went to in my entire life. Was his funeral? Never been. I didn't. I didn't didn't even go to my grandmother's funeral. Um, But so I like I'll never forget that it was in his uh, military chapel on uh, on base, on uh, naval air station base. And uh, yeah, that was that was heavy, but that was, you know, that was that was the course. The course is brutal, and I almost died. As a matter of fact, the first time I went through Hell Week, my class, I started Hell Week with uh, uh, pneumonia in sight. 
mm. I was spitting up blood, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to tell the instructors because I didn't want to start day one of first phase. Because I mean, they put you right back to yeah, the beginning. Day yeah. one of first because you got you go through three weeks of first phase and then the fourth week is hell week. Like you lose like a chunk of people in those first three weeks because it's brutal. And then you guys, so I didn't want to like. I already made it to Hell Week, which is hard. I didn't want to now have to start day one, go on medical hold, and then start day one again. So I hid the injury. Um, and uh, yeah, man, I, about day and a half in, two days in, I started feeling even worse. My lungs were shredded wheat. Um, got to a point where we were doing Steel Pier, which is a, a Evolution of Hell Week, where it's, it's the coldest Evolution of Hell Week. They lay you on a Steel Pier make you jump in the bay, tread waters, freezing cold. It's at night, mm-hmm. like two in the morning. Then you come out, take right, off your shirt, this, jump back yeah. in. So mm-hmm. you do all that. And at that point, my core temperature was 88.7. Yep. They took me, they drove me to Bud's Medical. We went through the re, the, 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 the rewarming drill. How does that and, work? Uh, it's just a process because they can't rewarm you too fast. Cause yeah, because be it'll shock your body. Yeah, and so they they get some. They have like warming blankets and towels, like in this in this heated thing, and so they gradually put more and more on you. Uh, and uh, they did that. Finally, my core temperature got back up, and uh, and from there they were like, "Yo, if you want to go back to buzz, or you want to quit?" <laughs> and so uh, I was like, "I'm not quitting." So uh, I went back in, and uh, as soon as I got there, they put me in the water surf tortured then we had an evolution called base tour where you got to run all around the base with with the boat on your head it's really brutal and like all i remember is running and then waking up in the hospital mm. yeah so i so the guys reminded me they you know the guys who were my boat crew told me it's like yo dude it's like somebody pulled a switch out of a, out of the computer you went like you were running and your whole body locked up and you went bam <laughs> And then uh, when I got to the, when I finally came to and was at the hospital, I think I came to in the ambulance and then they took me to Bud's Medical, checked, they had an x-ray machine there, x-rayed my lungs. It was like, yo, this dude's lungs are done. I had pneumonia, site and rhabdo. Ra- I don't even know what that rhabdo, is. Rhabdo, my, myalysis, people die from that. It's, um, it's where your, um, your muscle tissue breaks down. Ooh. Yeah, and your body's in some cases your body just starts eating itself, and like the proteins and stuff gets into your, I think it's your kidneys or something like that, and then that that's what causes um your kidneys to stop functioning well, and people people have died from it, and so I was in the ICU for a few days, and then from there finally got released, and then went back to buds and they was like hey good on you for not quitting but you got to start day one over again. oh my god they made yeah. you go all the way to the beginning yeah, because so of that. i had to well because it was medical if i would have made it past wednesday of hell week then i would have not had to start Son over of again a bitch. so yeah but the instructors were like hey they were apologetic they were like dude we're super sorry we didn't know that you were they thought i was faking <laughs> because you get a lot of guys who uh in their defense you get a lot of guys who are who who, who are not sick but they don't want to quit but they do want to quit. Yes. And so they, you know, they, they play games and they like, Oh, they're limping and instructors. And, and, uh, and finally, you know, the instructors had enough and they'll performance drop them. So they were on the verge of performance dropping me cause they thought I was faking. Yeah. And so after I got back to buzz, they I were mean, like, I understand that. Yeah. Like, this is the highest level yeah. shit. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And when I got back, I remember uh, the master chief of first phase and the senior chief came in. Well, the chief at the time came in and he was like, he was like, yo, we're sorry. We, but we're super happy you didn't quit. That's what we look for in a front mm. man. Dude, that's going to go and like until they're dead and then going back to and then still go even after they're dead. Right. And that, that I don't think I would have been able to do that. 
if it wasn't for my upbringing, like we talked about earlier. Like that hardened me so much that even while being deathly sick and being screamed at by the instructors and told you're faking, like that didn't break me. Because if I would have quit and then went to medical, you, there's no coming back from that. Yeah, you, 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 there's no you're gonna start first phase over again. It's just like, oh, well, sorry, hey, but you rang the bell. There's no unringing the bell. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, man, start all over. Went through day one of first phase again and watched a bunch of, you know, twenty, thirty guys quit again, and then uh, started uh, getting what got to Hell Week. Made it through Hell Week, and then uh, after Hell Week, um, I had I got performance role, two What's swims. That? So you have performance role is like an academic role. So they're not act for a test, not like for a written test, but just for like you have timed evolutions. And then you have like you have timed evolutions and you have certain pass fail evolutions. You know, like so drown proofing is like a pass fail evolution. It's where you have to your hands are tied behind your back, your feet are tied together, and you gotta bob water for a certain amount of time, then you gotta swim a certain amount of you know feet, then you gotta you Sounds gotta, easy. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta tread water all with your hands and feet tied together, right? And uh so that's a pass fail evolution. And you have the fifty meter underwater swim, which is a pass fail evolution. These are all evolutions that you have to pass at first phase but the, then you have the time evolution so you have a four mile time run every week in, in buds and, you, and the passing time in first phase is 32 minutes you have a two mile time ocean swim in first phase the passing time is 85 minutes you have an old course and in, 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 in the passing time I think the first phase is like 11 or 12 minutes something like that and so you had at the time I was in buds you had to pass at least one of those evol- timed evolutions in each phase in order to graduate to the next phase and I passed everything except for the swims I failed all my swims because mm. even though I uh, had learned, I had just learned how to swim, but I didn't really. Uh, I learned how to swim good enough to pass the screening test. I didn't learn how to swim good enough to do two miles in the ocean against yeah. current, right? Yeah. And so after I made it through Hell Week, instructor was like, "Yo, we're not even going to even let you class back up right now. We're going to just put you in brown shirt rollback land." And work with you on, which is like a whole program for guys who made it through Hell Week, and then work with you on your swims. And I was in that program for like three months, or maybe four months. And then I passed my, after the four months, I passed my first two mile time motion swim. I made the time limit, and then uh, um, class back up and with another class, and then got to super prideful. Got super prideful. you know, I'm not I'm in like every class. I'm either one of two black dudes or like the only black dude in my class. So, you know, I still got some of that street in me. I still got that, you know, lack of affirmation complex in me, you know. And, and so, you know, that all played itself out in pride, you know, kind of like what we t- discussed earlier, where I was just like, nobody can't tell me nothing. I made it through Africa. I made it through the Bronx. Yeah. You know, I'm one of the only black dudes in my class. I know how to swim. I'm in dive phase. I made it through hell week. You know what I mean? Like my head got so big and like i just remember i would go partying clubbing and chasing girls and like just like kanye west song was out i want to say around that time you can't tell me nothing that was like my theme song that was like my that was like and uh it was i was destructive and um when i got to die phase i failed the first two swims ocean swims because the swim times i dropped from 85 minutes to 80 minutes in die phase and uh Instead of working on what I needed to work on on the weekend, I was out partying. And uh, and then it got to a week of dive phase called dive week where you got to do these different dive tests. You got to do a, a um, ditch and down where you got to take off all your dive gear underwater in a specific procedure, swim up to the top, take a breath, swim back down, put all your dive gear on in a specific, preacher, in, in a specific procedure, 
then you do that bl- with a blacked out mask so you can't see then you do a uh, buddy gear exchange where you got to take off your buddy's gear and put it on a specific procedure and then he does the same thing and then you do that in a blacked out mask and then you have pool comp and then you have mm. this evolution called the tread which is with 280 dive tanks weight belt um dive gear you got to keep your hands above water and tread water for five minutes it literally feels like at least for me it feels like you're going to drown it's it's tough dude five minutes five minutes and, and you got all this weight on your hands can't touch the water if they touch the water you fail and oh um, yeah man and so I uh, I failed that four times because you get every day at the end of the day after you do your dive your di- whether it's ditching down buddy exchange whatever you get a chance to do the tread at the end of the day and so I so each Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday I failed the tread and uh, um, again now it's all on me because the instructors showed up the weekend before the tread the two weekends before the tread and then the weekend before the tread they said, all right, guys, this is a tough one. Um, well, I'll be here to work with, you know, instructors would they work with us on the weekends. They would show up at like 8 in the morning, not just to work with guys on the tread, but also other dive tests as well. And I was too busy waking up at some girl's house at 10, 11 a.m., you know. that Aren't you like, you're only like 22, 23 right now, right? Uh, I'm like, yeah, around 22, around 22, maybe 21. Yeah. I was 20. I think I was 21. Let's see. No, I turned 20 in boot camp. Turned twenty one at the hospital, so yeah, I'm 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 twenty one because this is January two thousand and four. Yeah, you're so, so twenty one. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like I and, and I hear yeah. you being hard on yourself with yeah. it, but like I was a fucking idiot when I was twenty. Yeah. Like you're yeah. you're a Navy SEAL when yeah. you're twenty one. Yeah. Like yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I guess you get a little kick in the ass because you yeah. fail some things and you make it longer on yourself. But, yeah, you know. Yeah, but you know, I, at the end of the day, too, we all did a lot of it was pride driven. You know, pride driven, and um, and yeah, man. So I got went to academic review board, got kicked out of buds, got kicked out completely, completely. completely. Out. Went to uh, back to Camp Pendleton. This time I got stationed in First Marine Division uh, with the grunts, and was humbling, but it was the humbling that I needed. Uh, because I'm down at the bottom, bottom, bro. That that grunt life is like legit. I remember we did a training exercise out in um, in 29 Palms, which is like this hot desert out in California, and and uh, we we finish our day, and uh, they're like, "All right, guys, it's time to go. Time to start bedding down." It's like looking around. We in the middle of like a bare desert. Like, all right, we're going back to the barracks. No, <laughs> freaking sleep on the rocks. So we just freaking got like a. Uh, 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 a mat and so I slept on a rock and mm. it was that was all humbling bro that was all like dang man like I put myself in this position and uh, long story short ended up getting back to Buds a year and a half later and uh, yeah made it through toughened you up for yeah, sure yeah humbled me for it sure it happened man. how it's supposed to happen yeah exactly how you it's know? supposed to happen exactly how it's supposed to happen and that's why I believe that everything in my life has happened exactly how it's supposed to happen do you know, you may not know this, yeah. this is kind of way yeah. out there, so yeah. if you don't, no problem. But do you yeah. know the average age of someone who first starts in the Navy SEALs? Like, who makes it? Uh, n- uh, I don't think, you know what? I, From what I recall, they've studied age groups. They've studied, you know, the backgrounds of, of participants who make, they, for years they've tried to figure out what is, who, like, what is it that, these guys have to make it through that other guys don't have, and they haven't been able to figure that out. Mm. I mean, they at one point they were like, "Oh, it's guys who come from like, uh, uh, you know, water backgrounds. You know, whether it's water polo or swimming. Oh, and then thought, oh, there's guys in their late twenties, this guy. But the, regardless, 
when they look at each person, it's all different. There, yeah, There's there, no pattern. Because you can't tell what's in a person's heart. Mm. You can't tell what's in a person's heart. And you know, I remember this. You know, you show up to training, and it's these guys that are like super skinny, super small, and and people will look at them like that dude's not. And that person standing tall, like at the end, like made it through. Versus a guy, there was a guy in my class, my first class. He was a triathlete. Everybody, the all the buds instructors knew him. They was like, "Yo, this guy's gonna make it." He's like, "This is when triathlons became a big thing, and like buds instructors were doing tri- triathlons to stay in shape, and so they all knew him." Everybody was like, he was going to win. He was going to make it. Dude, quit. Mm. It's like, and then here I am. He quits. something. Yeah. yeah. And then here I am, a dude that like never swam in the Bronx. And I'm still there. So it's like, you can't tell what's inside of a person's heart. Another crazy thing is you get guys who are like, who are like investment bakers or freaking lawyers or accountants. Like, it's the craziest thing. And they decided one day... You know what? I think I want to try that Navy SEAL thing. Mm. So you get guys like in their late 20s, you know, early 30s who are like showing up, you know, enlisted, not going in as officers. They're like, oh, you know, I'm just enlisted. I'm going to try. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there were guys in my guys in my class who there was a guy Don't in my class. Bread. <laughs> there was a guy in my class who was a road scholar. You know what I mean? You get a lot of guys from like Harvard, Yale, like Ivy League schools, very like guys from very affluent backgrounds. Who like show up? So it's it's very interesting the 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 type of people that that get in, but also the type of guys how they're not able to pinpoint the type of guy to get through. I don't think, at least of what we publicly know about, that's yeah. available. I mean, I'm sure there's some things mm-hmm. in the government we don't, but yeah. I'm not sure of all the different guys I've talked with on and off camera who get into the highest level types yeah. of government programs yeah. like this. I don't think there's been anything else i've come across that has the combination of psychological intelligence physical and courage yeah yeah like in whatever pot yeah. that is right there yeah. all together to have to make it so it's not like there could be a few other there, there definitely are a few yeah. other things that that actually do have more prestige than the navy seal there's yeah. not much but yeah. there's a few other things where it actually, ironically, might be a little easier once they've identified like the ideal type yeah, candidate to yeah, try out. Yeah. It's easier for them to yeah, make it yeah. because there's not. It's just a bizarre, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. very heavy combo. But yeah. that's why you know the guys. Th- there's a reason why guys like me yeah. gravitate towards listening to like what Navy SEALs have to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because there's a respect there for yeah. like, yo, yeah, not only did this dude like serve the country and do, go do crazy shit, but just yeah. to get there, get yeah. the right to do that. Yeah. I mean, you had to accomplish a lot. Yeah, no, and a, another big piece to it is you, you mentioned like then, you know, the, the mental strength, psychological strength, all that other stuff. But uh, another piece to it is the ability to operate and work as a team. Yes. Like that's that's what, you know, every SEAL unit ends with the word team, SEAL team. Three SEAL team, four SEAL. You know, it's, it's it's we we don't even refer to each other as Navy SEALs. We refer to each other as team guys. Mm. Like yo, so when you hear somebody else is that a team guy, you know that you, that's a SEAL yeah. that's asking that question. And, you know, if a guy's like, yeah, I was a Navy SEAL and I know Navy SEAL Ricky, you're gonna be like, that dude probably ain't no SEAL. We don't <laughs> refer to each other as SEALs. We refer yeah. to each other as team guys, right? Yeah. And so that's another thing that weeds out a lot of guys because we have lived. At least I would say in the last 20, 30 years I've been around, we live in a very individualistic society and culture. Like we discussed earlier. Yes. We live in a society that is all about me, 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 me. 
or just me and mine. That's why our country is so divided because it's all about me and mine. It's not about others. It's all about me, 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 me. And we talked about how, you know, sometimes it's not until you're what's for me it wasn't until I was 26 that I began to realize that life isn't about me it's about other people and because we live in a very individualistic society when guys show up to SEAL training and it's team based like yes we have to perform as individuals and yes when you quit you quit by yourself for the most part but it's a team based environment like yeah. when you're doing log PT you're doing log PT with seven guys each guy has to carry his weight when you're doing boats on heads, like each guy has to hold his head up erect. If not, if somebody ducks boat, you're going to jack up somebody's neck. There's been guys with fractured necks and doing boats on heads. Why are instructors using these tools? They're using these tools because they're trying to beat into us the importance of a team. It's about the guy to your right and the guy yeah. to your left. And if you operate with, 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 with excellence in your role and the guy everybody else does as well, then the team as a whole is, is successful. And I think that that's another reason why you have a big attrition rate, not just in SEAL training, but even in other special programs, because it's not a Johnny Rambo world. You know, Johnny Rambo does everything by himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's in, in all special operations communities, it's it's about a group of guys being able to work together to get the job done. And so you just get a lot of guys who show up and they it's hard for them to grasp that concept. And they could be the best runners, the best swimmers, the best whatever, but they just can't operate within the team. They can't rely on a guy and they can't have patience. And it's just, just that's what where a lot of guys crumble. And that, it, it seems to be, it seems to me like listening to you explain that that's maybe of all the skills, the most important thing. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That these guys you, have. You get guys who have guys who will have gotten to third phase and they will get performance drop like the week before graduation because of that. Because mm. throughout the entire course, we, we do peer evals. So every class, every, I think it's like every two or three weeks or whatever. Oh, during in, buds. In, in, yeah, in buds. Mm. And you'll get guys who will be, you know, who will, if you're consistently peered low throughout your entire tenure and you're that guy where, you know, people are, you know, avoiding and, you know, they don't want to be around and you're just an individual, right? We have a saying in our community, individuals fail, teams survive, right? And if you're an individual and the instructors realize that, you'll get to third phase, you'll graduate the island a week before graduation, it'll be like, up. Bye. performance drop you, you, you're not you, you're not cut out to go to a team mm. been a bunch of guys who who that is that, that is, happens that's a lot happened to yeah that's happened that's happened a lot i, I think there's a um no nah, i don't want to mention a guy name because i can't recall the entire story but a well-known guy who um who apparently that happened to um in uh, buds big youtuber guy big you know social media guy mm. uh, i'll tell you his name offline okay. but apparently that, that that's what happened to him as well um but yeah man it's uh got to be able to operate as a team yeah you guys also mm. on a side note here the yeah. thing about the navy seals is that the post service community like the navy seal community mm-hmm. whoa is that tight i mean yeah, you guys because yeah. i mean you all do go through like yeah. the exact same thing yeah but it's cra- It's such a fraternity. 100%. I mean, I yeah. went to, I had the opportunity to go to, I think it's literally called the Navy SEAL Foundation. Yeah, 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 it yeah, was a, yeah. There was a gala back in 2017, yeah. and a friend of mine who was a really high up uh, 
marine gunnery sniper who yeah. used to cover for a lot of these teams i think yeah i think that's what it was he was like yo i'm going to this because a lot of my boys are going to it they were yeah. navy seals yeah and i had a chance to talk with a bunch of these guys and i'm looking around the room and there are people from the last like 50 years yeah. spread out and there's just i it's hard to explain but like people would understand if you were there there's just a thing yeah and i've never been in front of something that was that serious yeah yeah you know what i mean yeah, yeah. it's a really special bond you yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. i mean what i think that's the what is it called there's a term um the suffering something about suffering when people suffer together they have these inseparable bonds or when people have experienced yes. the same type of suffering yes just like you know holocaust survivors yes you know you know, one Holocaust survivor will, will meet another Holocaust survivor that they've never met in person. They've never known each other, but they'll meet like 70, 80 years later. And it's like, they're the best of friends. They have this, this is this automatic bond is yes. because they, that shared suffering, they went through that same suffering together. And I think that that's what, what brings us together. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's why, you know, when I was on, um, on, on the show, special forces, Fox, um, People asked me when I did the first season, they were like, dude, like, how many times have you guys all worked together? I was like, we didn't really work together much. I worked with, well, actually, this is when I was doing the UK series, UK version of the show. Um, they were like, man, it seems like you guys have worked together or practiced together a long time before you shot the show together. And it was like, no, we just have a similar shared suffering. We just, we, we have a training that's, that's the tip of the spear and, and we all bought into it and we all understand if I go right, so-and-so is going to go left. You know what I mean? So I, we don't need to have a conversation. We know how to read and react and flow off of each other. And that's why we're able to work well together because we all have that same level of training. Same mm -hmm. thing when it came to the Fox show, we all were able to work together and it all worked smoothly because we all have that same level of training where we could read and react. And we know I don't need to, it's just like going on the op. You're not talking on the op. It's all like nonverbal cues. You know, it's all, you know, hand signals. It's all because you got to be sneaky, peaky, quiet, right? Mm. And so a lot of what we do comes from that training. You know, we train to contingencies as well. So, um, yeah, man, that 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 is uh, that's a bond that is in, inseparable. You know, I get I, I, w I worked on the plane. So funny when I worked on the movie, The Plane, there was another seal on there, Pete Scoble. And uh, great dude, great dude. Uh, his son is a super famous actor. Um I forgot his son's, uh, I think, I can't remember his son's first name, but his son's really, really good. Scoble? Scoble, yeah. So um, he was in The Adam Project. He was in, uh, he's the new Percy Jackson for Disney. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I know the name. The yeah, Adam, yeah, Walker, so that, that, Scoble? Walker, yeah, Walker. Huh. So Yeah, so Walker is uh, Pete's son. He's not one of the Stranger Things kids, is no, he? No, 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 okay. no. I never watched that show. No. It just feels like every kid who comes up was in fucking Stranger Things. Nah, but he's a great okay. kid, man. But uh, when we worked, when we went to go shoot plane together in Puerto Rico, it was like we had the combat scenes and all that, and it was just like, all right, we're going to do this. We didn't have to talk about it. Like, the stunt coordinator's like, hey, you should got to do this. The director's like, it got to a point, director's like, all right, we know he's a French guy. He's a French guy, Jean Francois. He was like, oh, yeah, I know. You guys know what you are doing. Go do it. <laughs> and me and, uh, me and Pete, we just kept shoot, move, communicate, drop, man. Right? Like, let's do this, do that. And it all work, worked well together. And we all had, it wasn't no competition. It wasn't no, it was a like, instant brotherhood. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, so 
Same thing with our consulting company. You know, we own a um, consulting company where we run pro athletes, collegiate athletes, and Olympians and corporations through mental toughness, critical thinking, team building, leadership training, all principles that we have to know in our community that translate well into business. And I can, all the guys that I know, like they all have day jobs. So sometimes I can't find the same seal to go do a job with me. Like we Mm -hmm. did this big, big pharmaceutical company, big pharmaceutical company back in January. And, uh, it's like, all right, need another seal. All right, who's this, who's available? All right, I'm not available, but I know this guy's available. All right, boom. Hey, Todd, come do this job with me. Todd comes do the job. Works flawlessly because we we know, yeah. like, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, man, you can't, I, I can't think of another job or another field that that has that that blessing i want to say because it, it truly is uh, a blessing man are you really tight with the guys you graduated with who, who became your team today oh yeah 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 100 100 percent. yeah they still talk to them as a matter of fact i had a two-hour call with one of my boys uh, a few weeks ago you know talking it's crazy the conversations are so different now because it's like dude you know my kids and this and that i'm dealing with this and my daughter's dating and so it's so mm-hmm. interesting because we all know each other's kids and it's so it's like That's the awesome. conversations are different but it's like damn we're getting old man <laughs> <laughs> it's so crazy because we think about you know i think about you know being young when you think about that time it's like 20 late 20s mid to late 20s in the teens early 30s in the teens and and then another thing i think about a lot too is uh you know my teammates who passed away like you know um Charlie Keating and and Pat Feeks and those guys and just thinking about the fact that they never had a chance to have kids. That's something that gets me. It's a you know every time like it's not every time but a good number of times when I'm looking at my kids like they come to mind especially when my kids come into my office because I have all the guys not all the guys but a good number of the guys who I serve with who passed away uh, on operations. I have the I have like a memorial wall in my office, so every day I'm seeing their faces every single day, and my kids come in the office and you know um, come give me a hug or you know, say they got back from school or whatever the case may be, and I look for my kids as I look at them as they leave my office, I see that wall, wow. and I just think about you know those guys who didn't get a chance to have kids and how you know their sacrifice you know paved the way for me and paved the way for others, and so you know yeah, that that bond transcends life and death as well. Yeah, you know they still stick with you even to this day. That's awesome. You have yeah. that though. Yeah, I mean for for a perspective check, you guys, it's like when you're in the seals, you're born into that because you yeah. know, like you're going to be going into battle. Oh yeah, most dangerous places. You're yeah. going to know guys that that don't make it back, yeah. or it could be you that yeah. doesn't make it back. Yeah, and it's a heavy, heavy thing. Yeah, man. But yeah. what what did you, when you got in? Like, what was your specialty? What did they bring you into? Yeah, so I was a corpsman. So I was I had already been a corpsman. Yes. So uh, that was automatic for the most part. And then I went, and then I was a human guy. So um, human intel. Human stands for it's an acronym means human intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it was cool, man. You get got to go to different schools and learn about running sources and tradecraft stuff, and uh, you know. Um, just being able to collect intelligence via another human being. You yeah. know what I mean? And uh, Now, how is this? Di- can we dig into this a little bit? Like yeah. how this is different from, yeah. you know, being a CIA case officer or something like that? Like what is your, what does a mission look like to you? How long are we talking? Are, are, are You had talked to me in the car earlier about the fact that like right when you came in, you inherited a lot of sources, right? So yeah. there aren't necessarily right away people you have to make sources. But yeah. how are you making sources? Are you doing a lot of plainclothes stuff, you yeah. know, meetings? Like how does it work? 
Yeah, so for me, my experience, I, I can't really go into too much of the differences between case officers and because I was never a case officer. I know okay. guys who were, but I was never a case officer. I can't speak to that. I want to say something. People like, that guy doesn't know he's an idiot. But uh, yeah, man, it's, it's uh, I think, I, I think I know the differences in the agency they refer to as assets. In our world, they refer to as, as sources. In policing world, they refer to as informants. So essentially, what I can assume for the other two uh, is you're essentially, you have, you're, you're utilizing people to help collect intelligence for you, right? Mm -hmm. To help get information for you that you need in order to build an intelligence package or order. It might just be to find out what the atmospherics are. Like what, what's this, what's, how's everybody in the, in this area feeling? What's the tone? Are people upset with the political climate? What's going on? Get me, uh, get me some, uh, you know, on the ground information so that that way I can have a good sense on how to move or what decisions I need to, what, how to move, what information I need to pass up the flagpole, so to speak. Right. Mm. And so, um, yeah, essentially it's, uh, it's collecting information to get a job done and, and, the other two entities that I mentioned, case officers, um, DIA, as well as, um, you know, maybe even FBI to a certain extent, they refer to them as assets and policing world refers to them as informants. But for the most part, I think we're all trying to do the same job. Now, how fast were you after you're in your team, you make it through, you're active, how fast were you deployed to active zones? Uh, so I was, after I graduated from sqt i went through a workup so we do a workup so you get to your team do a workup first part of your workup is pro dev professional development so that's about three months right and what does that consist that's where you go to your you go to your specialty school so Mm -hmm. if you have already have a specialization you go that if you don't have a specialization then you go to a uh you uh you go to an like an like an advanced so the sniper the snipers will go to advanced sniper school guys who are already snipers or a breacher can go to advanced breacher school or if like you're a human guy like when I got back from a, a deployment I went to TSO mm. so TSO is like a tactical surveillance course right so 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 that's what pro dev is where you're going to your school that speaks to your specialty or the specialty that you're going to have and then after that then you go through what's called ULT unit level training so your team comes together. And everybody goes, you do skydiving as a team. You do mm. diving as a team, like hitting a target. You do uh, CQC as a platoon. Uh, you do uh, land warfare. You do you hit all of these blocks of training as a team. And you're, 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 you're graded. Like, your, your team is graded. And your, your, team, your platoon is graded. And if they don't perform well, your platoon can get disbanded mm. and not even freaking be able to make a deployment. A headshot fool for sure be fired, so it's like one of those things where you you have to perform. It's not just like oh, let's just go do this training to check a box. It's like no, dude, you guys are going to go to war, so you better get it right yes. before you can go do the job, right? So you're always being graded from the time you're in buzz to the time you're you never your team. locked in. Is yeah, the point exactly? Yeah. Exactly. We have a saying in our community: earn your trident every day. Right? Yep. And then um, after that, you go through what's called sit. And then around sit, that's when you kind of find out where you're going to go. And so you you, you train as a team to that specialty or if it's um, 
if you find out that you need more human guys or you need another sniper because wherever you're going to go, like they need more guys to carry out sniper related operations, then those guys will be sent to those schools to fill those needs. And then you pump out. I may, I'm definitely going to fuck up the term if I try to go back to something you said in there, but the school you went to for yours, which was human Intel in this case. Yeah. Yeah. It was another name for it, but just for this. And it was like three months you said. The TSO was, I think TSO was three or four months. Um, what does TSO stand for? Tactical Surveillance Operations. Okay. Yeah. So you go there. Is this, what? maybe I missed this a little bit, yeah. but did you already had, upon graduating, Buds, you already had some sort of background? No, with no, 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 no. This was fresh, and they said, we're going to make this. You have to go to the school, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so, so you what had, did that comprise of? Like, what so, kind yeah, of- so one... It, comprises of a screening test <laughs> i can't go into details about the screening test but it's 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 not physical it's not like you're doing push-ups or anything like that it's very heady what what about the uh, it's very like the 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 fake phones record coming up again uh what do you mean when you were selling the fake phones was that a problem because oh no 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 okay you're good dude for a long period of time bro like I, every time i got called into an office or every time like I uh, when I was in boot camp, I was sweating. I thought, all right, this is it, this is it, this is it. <laughs> so that followed me for a long yeah. time, man. And it sucks, man. That's the one thing when you do when you do wrong, man. Um, even when you're repentant, man, it still it still can follow you for a long you time. Don't know. And, yeah, and so that's yeah. Um, so yeah, so you went so the you after you do the very heady screening test, it's interesting because you get this like three guys in a room, and it's it's very challenging. Then you go to the course if you pass that screening process. Mm. And what kinds of things? What kinds of things? And if you can't talk about, it, you can't talk. About yeah, it. yeah, I can't, I can't talk about the. Screening so you can't process. really go no, through no, not no. the screening, but like on the course, like oh, on the course. Are oh, they, so, so, so like I've had Joe yeah. Ted I in here. I've had mm. Andrew Bustamante, Jim yeah. Waller, all guys with different CIA backgrounds. Sean Ryan. Yeah. They talk about like being dropped into because I'm thinking just human intel right yeah. now. They talk about surveillance drilling, like being dropped into cities in the U.S. Mm. where you know they have set up drills to discover stuff. Like were you doing that's anything TSL. like that? So that's that TSL. is that. So okay. so so so. So the human course is like the basic entry level course on running sources. Just leave it at that. You okay. know what I mean? Just collecting information from meeting the person, like meeting the person, building relationship with the person, and collecting information from that person. Like mm-hmm. that's that's like the best, safest way I probably would like to describe it. And then the biggest part of it though. A lot of people don't realize is the writing side of it. That's the toughest part. What do of the you course. mean by the writing side of it? So everything you do, you have your you have your physical side of it where you go out and you meet your source and do all of that stuff, and then you come back. But then you also have a writing side of it because you got to remember why are you going to meet with these people? You're going to go meet with these people because you're trying to collect intelligence. Okay, that intelligence can't stay in your head has to be documented uh, and you have to and, and that's where i learned visual storytelling because you have because mm. they teach you how to write in a way where you write a report today somebody could pick up that report 10 years from now and read it as though those those events are happening right there and then so it's a very tough literary course that's the biggest part of it you spend more hours 
in a blacked out window room <laughs> writing and sketching, which is another part of it, than you do the other side of it, you know, because, uh, and when you, and the thing is you got to memorize everything because you can't, because when you leave the area where you're doing this writing, everything outside is bad guy territory, notionally, mm-hmm. just notionally. Yeah. And so the thinking is if you go meet, meet with somebody and you're taking notes and then you start heading back and then somebody pulls you over, foreign government pulls you over, foreign police or whoever, whatever country in pulls you over. And you got all these notes. Oh, like there's where the nuclear bomb is and there's where this is and there's where that is. Oh, yeah. And you said you were uh, Scandinavian? Oh, okay. Yeah. You're done. So you got to memorize everything. And then you got to go back and you got to document it. And that's the hard. And that's why a lot of guys don't like going that route which I understand because last thing you want to do when you're downrange downtime is write long intelligence reports. Yeah, but it's critical. But it's critical. And the interesting thing is my mom prepared me for that. Because remember I told you my mom was a creative writer. Ah, I forgot about that. And my mom would make my brother and I read New York Times articles and, and, and books and write reports. And if our reports weren't near perfect, she would make us pick another article or another book and start all over again. And we couldn't go outside to play, especially in the summertime. We couldn't go outside to play unless our reports were done and perfect. So I grew up writing. As a matter of fact, you know, mom. You had a good mom, man. Yeah, man. My mom's a beast. And the thing is, for her, you know, a lot of parents put like a baseball bat, baseball glove in their kids' hands or a basketball, or, you know, jujitsu outfit or whatever. My mom put a pen and paper in my brother's hands because she was of the mindset that if you know how to articulate your thoughts in a literary format or if you can articulate somebody else's thoughts in a literary format, you will never be without a job. You will always have a job. And so when I got to to the teams and I found out about Humid and when my OIC was like, who wants to go? And most of the guys were like, nah, I don't want to do it. Nah, because they wanted to do other, they wanted to do, they wanted to be the sniper. They wanted to be, and that's all cool. I was just like, my hand shot up and I was just like, I want to do that because I love writing. You know what I mean? I love storytelling. I love, I, I just love being able to get what's outside of my head onto the page. You know what I mean? I know people joke about, oh, seals write books, but the reality is, you know, a lot of guys don't, you know, because yeah. they have other people writing for them. But me, I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. Like, I write my book. Clearly. Out. Yeah. yeah. Once again, yeah. link in description. Yeah, Go by Chameleon. I write my screenplays. You know, I write, yeah, I don't have a, so funny, I guess so many people like, you wrote, who was your ghostwriter on Transform? Because it was all well written. I was like, I don't have a ghostwriter, dude. I sat and freaking wrote that book and bled over that book. And the crazy thing is the publisher, they didn't think, they, they didn't have confidence in me because it was my first book. And so they hired an editor. And uh, I remember I had the first meeting with the editor. And she was like, you know, they hired me for like five, six months to edit this book. <laughs> and she was like, but. I don't think it's going to take that. We edited the book in like three weeks. Wow. Two, three weeks. That's how fast it all happened. And, uh, and an interesting thing is my publisher didn't want the, my, not my first book to be over. They didn't want my book, first book to be over 80,000 words. I had to fight them to get it up to, 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 uh, you know, 130,000 words, show them comps and everything. And, uh, 
so when I was writing the book, I, I really focused on keeping it under 130,000 words. And when the editor read it, she was like, why didn't you, why didn't you go further on this part of the story? Why didn't you expand mm. on this? And I was like, my publisher told me I'd be in breach of contract. And she said, what? She went back to the publisher. was like, hey, we need more. Remy needs more space. He needs to tell, tell a little bit more about this story when it relates to his grandmother here. And that's how, you know, so like that served my, what my mom did served me well. And, Everything that I do, like even when I'm working on special force, was working on special forces Fox. Like we had to write those briefs. Like I had to write my briefs, like that I gave on camera. Like I had to write them, memorize them. Oh, you them. did all that. Yeah, yeah. It's like oh, all the producers would be like, "All right, you need to give a brief on like, you know, they're going to get gas, so give them a brief on that and and just make it look cool." So you got to write all that stuff out. You know, what I mean, even when my speeches, I write all that stuff out and memorize them. Like you know, we just we just landed a. Uh, a TV show. We were able to sell a TV show uh, to a major production company. Uh, it's an unscripted TV show, and we got that job because I wrote the I wrote the freaking the 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 the, um, the pitch for it. Right. Mm. So writing, my mom was right. You know, she she had the key. You know, and the key was, hey, if you can write, you'll never be without a job. And that served me in the community, and that's what helped me do my job when I was downrange actually running sources and having to now write these reports and now these reports are going up the chain of command and now these reports are going to other people outside of the military and i'm not looking like an idiot am i yeah well you you, i mean because the thing not to bury the lead with this but out out front you were talking about how for the writing to happen though Mm -hmm. you were trained to be able to picture things and compartmentalize them to be able to write it down later yeah so maybe it's like okay well i need to get the fuck i'm just making one up right now correct me if i'm wrong but like maybe it's like all right i need to get the fuck out of here i won't be able to write for eight hours or something i'll be at this place tonight and i can do it like how what what kinds of skills because this is relatable to other things in normal people's lives like mine like what kinds of how did you find a way to so perfectly visually remember everything and then compartmentalize it to put it in a perfect report i've always had a very photogenic memory i think that I, you know i can't Me i too. can't i can't yeah. really say that it was like something that i learned i wish it was i had a simpler form simple formula that i could give to somebody and be like i did this 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 and this i just i've just always had a photogenic memory. and no you know what i, I, I correct myself i've always worked that muscle whether directly mm. or indirectly i've always just like I think the gift was there because my dad, you know, my dad, we, we didn't go into it, but my grandfather had like nine wives and, <laughs> and yeah, my, my dad's father. Grandpa was born. Yeah. And he kept on having, he kept on having daughters. My dad was the firstborn son to my, to my grandfather. And my grandfather, not only was he a Yoruba chief, but he was also Muslim. Mm. So my father memorized the uh, Quran at a very early age. Mem- wait, memorize, memorize the Quran. The Quran, yeah, at a very early age. How many fucking age. pages? Is that? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I've never read the Quran, but he memorized the Quran at an early age. Fast forward, you know, after my grandfather died, the wives dispersed to different parts of Nigeria. My dad went down to the south of uh, of Nigeria, Lagos, and they were Christian missionaries there. And not only did they teach the Bible, but they taught like math and science and literature and all of those things. My dad memorized the Bible. And my dad was able to memorize mathematical equations and all these different things to the point where the missionaries like, dude, like this guy's a genius. Your dad was genius. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And so, and so I think that I, 
I, I don't think I have his level of genius, but I think that I've I inherited Something. part of that. Yeah, you know, part of that, you know, ability to memorize things or see a problem, but in my mind, my because my dad was an engineer as well, you know, so part, you know. Part of that is being able to see a problem and figure out a solution, yes. figure out a way. And so that's what I've always, I, I think that a lot of it came from my dad, but then a lot of it came from me working that muscle, being intentional about working that muscle, whether not intentional, but whether directly or indirectly working that muscle mm. to memorize and remember things. Even now, I, like I, I memorize stuff. I have this this list of, of stuff that I go through all the time where I'm always trying to make sure, is this fresh? Is this correct? And I'm double checking to make sure, is this right? Is this on point? Just to keep working that muscle because that goes into acting as well, right? Like mm. you got to memorize your lines. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? You got to know your lines. And and me as a as a writer director now, like, you know, I have a saying, and this came out of my time serving in the military, a great leader will never make you do something or not do something that they have not done or yes. they are not willing to do. Yes. You know what I mean? Love that. And and I, you know, my end goal in life is to be a writer director. That's why I directed the short. That's why I directed a, a short film. Uh, companion film for Chameleon and I got the other feature film that I'm going to be doing and how can I expect actors to memorize lines especially lines of monologues that I'm writing <laughs> you know what I mean like when I write these long speeches and how can I expect an actor or actress to memorize that and deliver a performance if I'm not doing it Right. If I haven't done it, if I haven't put myself in a position to be able to, you know, memorize things and, and be able to regurgitate those things and get them out to, to, to the space, like that's hypocritical. So I think that's another part of it for me and why I'm, why I'm always working that muscle, that memorization muscle or that that muscle of finding a solution to a problem. We have our, our apparel company, Kejo, and all our shirts have different sayings. And we have this one saying, our f first shirt that we launched with was solutions greater than excuses. Mm. finding the solution instead of coming up with an excuse as to why something doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. You have that real team, that, that team's theme from, yeah. from the Navy SEALs clearly. Yeah. But I, I, that is one of my favorite things ever. The, mm. the idea I'll never ask someone to do something that I haven't done, done. myself yep. or, or at mm. the very least wouldn't do myself. Yep. Exactly. And I, I keep myself in check with that every day Yeah. because you know, I built, this myself yeah, for yeah, a long time yeah. I, with the help of great people like yeah. you agreeing to yeah. come in here of course yeah but you know now i have a couple contractors who are working on my second and third channel with me to edit things and i'm ocd as fuck yeah, yeah, right yeah. there's a certain way i want things and yeah. i'm a part of they're yeah. not just editing it yeah, like i'm yeah. a part of the process yeah. and they're i'm always checking that when i ask them to do something and it could be something as simple as like an alessi if he's listening, he'll laugh at this one. But it could be as simple as, yo, that text on the thumbnail, we have two lines. Yeah. That line, the, there needs to be like six pixels of space instead yeah, yeah. of eight yeah, yeah, in between yeah, yeah. there. And I know that because my dumb ass is making the thumbnail for the episode yeah, yeah. right now where I'm doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right? Yeah, yeah. And the minute I ask him something, and this hasn't happened yet, but yeah. the minute I'll go to ask him something where I'm like, wait, I've never done that before. I know I'm going to stop and I'm going to say, I'll just fucking exactly. take care of that. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. There, there's, and that's... I. I I guess that's something that came through doing what I do, but yeah. you you're you learn that from life and death situations. Yeah, yeah. So well, it's easy yeah. for you to do it, frankly, with with the things you do now. It's yeah. it's not as high as stakes either. Well, yeah, you know, and I I learned that having bad leaders as well in the military, mm. not just like life and death, but like even like I, dude, I remember we were doing some training 
thing in with the Marines and this out of shape sergeant was like, get up top there, get up top there. You got to get up that mountain and and, and, and provide cover and fire. <laughs> and he's huffing and puffing up the hill. And bro, like when I say, yo, this hill is like steep, bro. Yeah. And by the time I got to, it was like somebody took razor blades to my quad muscles. Mm-hmm. Like that's how sore my muscles were. And he's like getting on us and we're just like, dude, you're not even, leave from the front, bro. Yes. Like, leave from the front. Like, you're telling us to do this, and you're freaking yelling at us, berating us down there. And and you you would die if you even tried to get to the top. And, like, it was running into situations like that that infuriated me, but showed me what not to do. So, yeah, it was life and death situations at times, but it was also having bad examples. Another thing is, like, that I learned in the military is being on on a non-soft side and then being on a soft side is, like, you know, taking a genuine interest in those you lead. You know what I mean? Like, it's not about just them being a stepping stone to get to the next rank or get to the next level. It's like, yo, I really care about you. And I I had, I remember having leaders who, they just saw me as a stepping stone or other guys as a stepping stone. They didn't see me as an actual person. They didn't take a genuine mm-hmm. interest. And yeah, I did my job. Like, I did my job. But on the flip side, I remember having an OIC in the teams. That dude. What's an OIC? Sorry. Uh, off, uh, officer in charge. So in oh. charge of the platoon. That dude took a genuine interest in every single one of us. He mm. knew our mom's name. He knew, like, he knew whether what we were going through in our personal life. He wasn't doing that, like, to get into our business, but just so he had an understanding of us so that he could better lead us. And because he took a genuine interest in us, like, bro, I was willing to run, not just meet the standard, but run through walls yes. because for him to get the job done because I knew that he cared about me. And that was another thing that came out of my time serving in the military, another thing that I try to apply now, and it's it's re- it's very disheartening when I find myself in business situations because where it's like when I see the people not take interest or care about not even people below them, but people on the same level as them. You know what I mean? It's just like, bro, that's not the way business is done. You know, I don't saying? know why so many people are like that. There is a common pattern, and yeah. it's not to – I don't like to paint, like, all yeah. negative views. There's a lot of great people yeah. who are practicing yeah. exactly like you are yeah. right now, and shout-out to all those people. Yeah. But, you know, in my experience in the business world, which is less than yours, yeah. I'm younger than you, but I, I've seen enough to be able to say this confidently. Yeah. You see a lot of people who have stepped on people or stepped over people to get where they are. Yep. And, you know, it's not as simple as, oh, but they – but the bad guy wins in life because they got a lot of money. You know, they're – Usually they're miserable sons of bitches, yep, yep. and that's their payment. And yeah. no one fucking loves them, and they're gonna die alone. Yep, and that's 100%. a sad thing. I, yep. I don't, I don't wish that upon yeah. them. But you know, to me, I just always thought like, why would you ever let personal bullshit, personal goals at the expense of other people, yeah. money, yeah. get in the way of not just business by the way but like family and yeah. stuff that's yeah. the worst yeah when you see that and people will step on their own kind, yeah, like man. their own people, I should say, yeah, man. like it just. It just offends something in the human spirit to me. Yeah. I don't know. No, I agree, bro. I agree. And I've seen, <laughs> you know, working in the publishing world. I mean, Brad knows he's been with me for five years, you know, working in entertainment. It's, it's you see a lot of things, man, where it's just like, sometimes we ask ourselves, man, why are we even still doing this? Yeah. 
Like we could be find success in other stuff. Like, you know what I mean? We talk about that all the time and it's like, what's the goal? You know, the goal for us is to be able to tell stories that are going to impact people. And, you know, because going back to what we talked about with the whole human trafficking thing, if it's a global issue, it's going to take a global response. And the yes. best way to have a global response is by being able to tell a story in a fashion that appeals to people in the fashion where people can sit down, view and consume it. And so that's what keeps me in this fight. That's what keeps me like persevering because it's, I mean, do every day. I, I have a, a fight, dude. Every, not every day, every, almost every moment is a battle in my head because I'm juggling so much stuff and I'm trying and I'm, and I'm doing the right thing, trying to do the right thing. But then I run into people that stab me in my back. I run into people who betray me. I run into people who don't have the same level of it, that, who have no integrity at all, but portrays though they have, I run into, you know, just things happen and that messes with my mind a lot. You know what I'm saying? And then the stress and then being a father and then having kids and then all of these different things. So like when I'm not, the worst thing for me sometimes is to just be in my own head. Forever. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. it's a battle. But for me, it's about what's the end result? What's the goal? I know that my goal, Brad's goal, our intention, sure your goal, the intention is, to impact people, to make try and make the world a better place, whatever that may mean, you know, and whatever whatever level we could do that with the platforms that we have, and that's the only thing that keeps me in the fight. Because you, you know what, though, people will get lost. I I I want to give you credit for something yeah. that is even at the core of what you're saying. Before you're talking about all the things you do publicly, mm -hmm. and yeah. I mean, actor, writer, yeah. director, former Navy SEAL, like the the list goes on and on. But like you talked earlier with me about your kids yeah, yeah, and the yeah. values you're instilling in yeah. them, you and your wife yeah. and how you do that. Yeah. You're winning at home first. Yes. yes. You're put your legacy is putting yeah. putting them out to be even yeah. better people than than a, a better person than even you were. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people in your position, not you, but yeah. like they'll preach about it because maybe they have a platform or something. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, and yeah. they can say things that look pretty fucking yeah, good yeah, in a sixty yeah. second clip. Yep. But you get them off camera, you send them home, they're fucked up. Exactly. The family's exactly. fucked up. Maybe exactly. the, maybe their wife left them because exactly. and their wife was right to leave them because exactly. they gave them no time. Yep. So it yeah. seems like I, I wanna give you that credit like oh, right so. here on the podcast. It seems like you have your priorities. Yeah in check and that's the best example is is through example yeah, you know or, or, or the best teaching point i'm sorry is is through the example you said and i think yeah. you're setting a great example at home I'm for trying your kids. man i'm trying that's the goal man because like i said earlier if my kids suck at life if my wife my marriage is falling apart and uh but i'm making all of this money and have all of this stuff going on it's all worthless it's worthless <laughs> i mean it's all worthless you know what i'm saying <laughs> Well, we, we got on, I love that tangent yeah. right there, but yeah. we got off what we were talking about. So I wanted yeah. to go back to that, yeah. but you were talking about the intelligence reports and, yeah. and how you got to be able to write them down and stuff. Yeah. What goes into a great intelligence report? Like what, what makes something that's like, Ooh, they're going to use this and they're going to love it. It's just clarity. It's just simple. It's just being as being simple and clear. You know, it's, it's not rocket science. It's not like it's a formula or anything. It's just like, writing in a fashion that's one linear 
right? Not jumping around, like having like a, a, a set structure that you're that where a person, okay, here I am in the story or or the meeting that this person was in was in was beginning, middle, end, just like a mm-hmm. screenplay, right? But then, and it's in similar fashion as a screenplay. And I think that this is what helped me as a screenwriter is is clarity, s- simplistic, like like in a book, you could. You have unlimited pages almost in comparison to a screenplay. You could write long monologues. You could write long descriptions. And there she was in the right. beautiful uh, forest and the trees were glistening and all of this other stuff. And and people get that because you're painting that picture, but you don't have that in a script. In a script, you have to be you have to be able to paint that picture, but with less words and in a simplistic way. And I think that that's what makes the best Intel reports are the, the, the structured. And when I say structured, I don't mean like going into crazy writing structure. I'm just talking about simple beginning. This is the beginning part of the meeting. This is how, this is how, how he or she was when we met. This is, was my, this was what I recognized. This is what, and then just going and then all the way through. And then this is the end. And obviously in that is the information that they provide and all that other stuff. And then this is the end, mm. you know, linear fashion, simple and clear. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what did they teach you about psychological profiling of people? I mean, a huge part of any intelligence, yeah. I think we can all kind of surmise this, is that you got to know people better than yeah. pretty much everyone else. Like, yeah. what, what kinds of things did they teach you about people's like pain points or hit points to be able to take advantage of? Body language, being able to read mm. body language, um, prying into a person's motivation by asking a lot of questions, mm. you know, and when the biggest thing is when um, somebody says something, it's easy to throw away. To, to, it's easy to to get an answer, and 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 feel as a person that's receiving the information that that's enough. When there's still something there that you could really pull out, mm-hmm. right? So it's just essentially being a good reporter, you know, being a good reporter. And so, um, yeah, but body language is a big part of it. And then, um, like I said, being able to 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 recognize. <sighs> We did, man, the class I did on this, you got to remember, this is years ago, so I can't remember in detail everything. The biggest thing that I remember is when I was in those classes on how to read people and how to figure out whether somebody was telling the truth or not, and all these different things that relates to making sure that we're getting the proper intel, I already already felt like I knew it all. Mm. And I don't mean that in a prideful way. No, I understand what you mean. Yeah, I felt like all I was now getting was the terms that go along with what I was doing. Because I had been doing it for years. Yes. In New York City. Yes. 100%. I, I had been doing it. I had been reading about I've been, been able to tell, okay, this guy that's doing this car box can't just walk past him. Don't even pay him any mind because as soon as you give him a second of your time, that's the bait. He's going to reel you in. You're going to get hustled. That's when the hustle is going to start. Somebody's going to be his back. You know, Or when you're on a train and you don't just sit and focus on what's in front of you. You need to be always kind of scanning around, looking around, reading the room, reading who's on the train, reading, looking through the window to see who's down another car down, a homeless person, a crazy person is about to come down, come, come through the, uh, your train, whatever. I forgot the train door, whatever to come into your, into your train section. And then 
Do you make eye contact? Do you not make eye contact? You're going to have to figure that out as soon as you look at that person, right? You're going to have to make eye contact. You're going to have to look at that person before that person recognizes you look and make a decision. Read that person really quick. Make a decision. Is the decision I'm going to get off this train or is the decision I'm going to stay put? Is the decision I'm going to stand up because I'm in a position where I won't be able to defend myself fast, yeah. right? These are all things. I lived that. I, I, I mean, I, from the time I was... I don't want to say five because I was young, but from the time I was like seven, eight years old, all the way to the time I was 20 years old, I lived all of that. So now when I got into the classroom, all I was doing was putting the titles behind what it was that I had been doing. It's almost like you could play the instruments like a genius in the orchestra. You just couldn't read the music. You didn't have to. Yeah, You just knew it. Yeah, I just knew it. Yeah. I just knew it. And, And that's why it's like hard for me to be like, Oh, this is what they taught, and this is what they taught, and this is just like, no, it's just stuff that I did, and I can't remember, you know, I mean, again, this is over, what, 15, 16 years ago, too, so. But still, it's like, with things like this, all the things they could teach you, you, it's not like you could just do calculations on the spot simultaneously of all this stuff. You kind of have to be trained to have a second sense to amalgamate it all. Put it together and know, like, ooh, go time, not go time. And then, yeah, and then another thing, too, was... When I got to some of these countries, it was like, I felt like I can identify with these guys. What do you mean? Because, as I mentioned offline, less than 1% of Navy SEALs are African American, Mm. right? Like, I I don't know my exact number, but I was like around the 50th, somewhere around the 50th African American SEAL in the history of the team since 1962, right? Class I graduated started with 270, 29 graduated. I was the only black guy in my class. And that's the way it is, like almost every class. And then once you get into your specialty, whether it's a sniper, whether it's a breacher, because there's not that many African Americans, then you once you get into the specialization program, it's number of African Americans is even far less than it's a percentage of a percentage, yeah. right? Yeah. And so when I would get overseas, I remember the first time there's these guys, you know, guys. Guys, I think I can't remember if he went. I know he went to Ivy League school. I can't remember if it was Harvard or Yale, whatever. He was a human guy as well, and doing a turnover op, and he's talking to them, and and I'm and I'm watching because I'm observing. You know, I'm not in the room. I'm like watching on the feed. I'm just like, mm, like I see something there. Like mm. I, I felt like I can identify. There were things that I felt like I was able to see that other guys weren't able to see. Not every guy, but other guys weren't able to see. Not because they weren't good at what they did. They were great at what they did, but because they didn't have the background that yes. I had. Yes. Right. Environment. So, so yep. they would ask a question in a way that was like the way we were taught to ask a question. Right. And they were good at what they did. And they, more chances than none, got the information that was required to be gotten. But then when I went into the room with the same source, different day or situation, whatever the case may be, there was this connection. He's, I grew up in a volatile environment. Mm this dude is in a volatile environment. I grew up poor, not rich, poor. This dude grew up poor. He ain't rich, right? You know, I grew up in tribalism in, in Nigeria. There's a lot of tribalism. There's a lot of tribalism here in America, but there's a lot in Nigeria. There's a lot of tribalism in the countries that I went to. So to them, this is, this is different hood, 
but still the hood. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So when I would go into the room, it was just and they and and interestingly, they were surprised when they would see me. Because they never, like, when I would come in for the first time for turnover, they'd be like, I got pictures. You know, I'll show you offline, but I got pictures with dudes. Because oh, it's like black guy. Because they watch mm-hmm. all of the, uh, you know, American movies with subtitles, of course. But they watch Eddie Murphy. So they know who Eddie Murphy, Chris Tucker, and all these guys are. <laughs> and they're laughing. I remember going to meet my first meeting with one source. He's like, hey, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy. <laughs> right? Because I was smiling and stuff like that. But you know what? I use that to my advantage. By, you know, playing that up. Oh, you like Eddie Murphy? Oh, I can do Eddie Murphy. What's up? I can do Martin <laughs> Lawrence. And do, and that would break ice. Yeah. You know, whereas a guy who's from Harvard, Frogman, went to the school, he ain't going to go in there. Like, Yo, what up, what up, what up? But I could do that. And I know how far to go with that and when to dial it back and wait, get down in business. Because I, I feel like I have that connection because we're Makes sense. from the you know, same, both from the hood, but different type of hood. And when I say hood, I just mean like from a very similar backgrounds, you know, yeah. um, in spirit, not in actuality. You know what I mean? And you were serving in the teens for eight years. Or I'm, I'm just thinking of this as yeah. you're giving that answer. Yeah. Like, are you allowed to say where you were at all? I, you know, I just try to be vague just because Let's of be the fact that them. I was doing a human thing, human yep. thing. So Middle East. Okay. I just try to be vague there. Just we can use our imaginations yeah, yeah, on that one. Yeah, yeah. So how like how often were you deployed over there versus back home time off? Like what was yeah. there a set kind of schedule or? So the way it works is you do your work up, deploy, do your work up, deploy, do your work up, deploy. So it's that. So it's that. It's, it's about I want to say it's like eighteen months work up. When you get back from deployment, you have like a vacation and then like we call it leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then depending on the, where you're going and it's about six to eight month deployment. Okay. So the deployments I did were about six to seven months. So I would say seven months the longest uh, just because like we have like what's called Advon. So Advon is like the advance. It's the your whole platoon won't go, but like a part of your platoon will go. Advon will get there early because part of that is to do a turnover, and then the rest. I don't of the think platoon, I heard of that. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 we call it Advon. Got it. So yeah, so that kind of adds a little bit more time sometimes on guys' deployment. OICs for the most part, uh, platoon chiefs, um, like human guys in some cases. If you're if you're a medic that has like sniper breacher qual, like a bunch of different quals, for sure you're part of that Advon to get there because now you're you're replacing another team that's coming back for the most part, mm. you know, to fill that space. So, amen. Are you allowed to say what team you were on? Like what number or is that no go? I can't. I, I just, I was on West coast teams. Okay. What yeah. are they even or odd? So West coast teams are odd. I always forget. Uh, East coast teams are even. Got it. Yeah. And so you're in the middle East, like, cause again, we've kind of touched on this, but you're doing Intel work, yeah. but then you're also doing, like how much of it was like out there in the field doing kind of covert source work versus you're kitted up doing missions to kicking down doors and doing yeah. So thing. a part of it is so I'll use I'll take one one deployment as an example. Okay. Right. So what this particular deployment I was on we did was called Vampire Ops. So we slept. We went to bed like around eight nine depending on like 10 in the morning woke up like around 
five, six o'clock in the afternoon. And then like me, like I was doing my Intel stuff. Like I was meeting with sources, like pretty much like right after I had breakfast, mm-hmm. right? I call it breakfast. Like, like I'm meeting with sort of, and I had an interpreter that I worked through for the most part. So I, so it's not just me, it's me and an interpreter. Um, and then also sometimes I would go in with another guy. Um, and, uh, and so you do that. We, there's more to it because you have your, 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 your team meetings every day as well, which is a part of it as well. And then write, route that information up the chain after you do your meetings, write your report, send that up. And again, I'm just t- taking a random day, but one meeting is not going to lead to an operation, right? It's mm-hmm. like sometimes it's two meetings, sometimes it's three meetings, right? Because part of it is like getting that information and then embedding that information and gets other information to make sure it's accurate. It's not, you, so you can't have a, a source come in and be like, so and so is at that house. Like, all right, we're going to go take down that house. It's like, all right, so and so is at that house. All right, cool. You got to double. Yeah. Let me try and get somebody else to vet and then get somebody else to vet that. And then, once that information set up the chain of command, again, there's more to it, but I'm just I'm sublimating it for the sake of not trying to get into all the details, then an op can get approved, right? Mm-hmm. DA, you know, we call it DA, direct action mission, can get approved, right? Or recon mission or whatever the case, whatever the mission is required, right? And so I would do that, and then we would go and we would go and DAs, we would go out the door like at, I don't know, midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning, when everybody's asleep and then come back and that was the day that was the cycle you know what i mean like build intelligence and when we have it all and everything's been vetted we're not going out every single night yeah right because it's a process yes right and then there's stuff that there's information we're getting that's not coming from me right there's like maybe the battle space command is like there's a target over here you gotta go get hit this target now boom 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 and that's a different situation. Do you have another humanant guy on your team with oh, you? Yeah, or yeah, are you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you're working yeah, in, in teams yeah. in this part yeah. as well. Yeah. Like okay. it's, it's, you have two to three. Well, I don't want to say that. Like in the situations I've been in, it's been about two to three. Got it. Yeah. So obviously you had the repository of like sources that you are inheriting yeah. that came before you. But what did you make the, the sources who you identified and ended up bringing on? Did mm-hmm. you usually get those? through the sources that you already had or what would you look for in people to make them a source? Like, was there a type of a target kind of person that you always wanted to have in your pocket? Yeah. For, for me, for the most part, when I got in country, the work, the last thing you want to do is, in my opinion, is have a source say, I know a guy, (laughs) you need to bring him on. Uh, Cause you know, you don't want to do that. I mean, because you don't, because you know that part of that motivation is going to be money. You yeah. never want somebody, you never want to work with somebody for the money, right? You want, you know, you want them to have some type of buy-in, you know, outside of the financial piece to it. And so, um, so the pool that I got was always pools that were already kind of established for the most part, except for there was one deployment I was on where. Like we got there and um <sighs> trying to be very vague about this. Take your time. But uh there wasn't a source pool for the most part, but the group was the group of guys was vetted because they were tied to a government that's tr- that was trying to help us out, 
with what we're doing. That's the okay. biggest way Good I enough. think I can explain yeah. it, right? So um, it wasn't like I'm going out in town and trying to find somebody or anything like that. Like, oh, you know, or try to hear a story of a guy who family got murdered by Al-Qaeda. And it's like, oh, I'm going to go have a conversation with that guy and say, hey, you want a chance to get back? I've never found myself in that position. You know, it's always either inherited a stable and then got rid of guys. Like there were times where I was just like, yo, this dude hasn't performed or this dude is like BSing or this dude's motivation has completely changed. He's just in it for the money and then cut, cut ties. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, on the mission side themselves though, once you actually would be approved to, mm-hmm. you know, you have enough intelligence cause you're, it sounds like your end of it, you're the guys who are determining a good amount or number of the missions, percentage of the missions that end up happening because you're kind of the tip of the spear. Is that fair to say? I want to say good. Are you talking about human guys across the board? Or are you talking about? Yeah, across the board for the various teams. It's a, it's a, it's a piece. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a piece in the puzzle. You know what I mean? Because you could have all the meetings and collect all the information as you want, but if that, if if other pieces don't connect, there's no mission that's happening. If that makes sense. Mm. So it's like, it's just a piece. That's the best way I can explain it. Because you could be getting intelligence from, because what if a government agency like has some information, yeah. key information, and then that information gets vetted, then you're going out the door. Like you didn't really have that, the playing that that's, role. That's right? kind of... That's what my common sense was telling me. Yeah. And then when I, was, when I was listening to you talk, I don't know if it's different, yeah. like team to team. It sounded yeah. like a lot of the missions were happening because of yours. And I'm sure some were, yeah. but like there's a balance of it. It's a balance. It's point. a balance. A lot of it is not happening just because of me it's, or just because of my effort or just because of the effort of the guys in the shop. It's, it's, it's different things. It's even meeting with the OIC, meeting with like somebody who's high up in an area like a shake or something like that you know what i mean have a sit down with them so it's definitely all the onus doesn't fall solely on human guys and it never fell solely on me it's a like i mentioned earlier it's a team and so it's like i'm just bringing a piece to the table and hopefully that piece lines up with what's already been brought to the table or hopefully whatever's been brought you know or vice versa that gotcha. makes sense. And no, that's just the, that's the way it plays out. I'm doing math in my head because you you were telling me earlier you left the teams January 2016. Yeah, yeah. And you did like eight, eight and a half years yeah. in the teams. Eight years. Yeah. So you're getting in 08-ish, 09-ish? No, I joined the Navy in 2002. Right, but I'm saying you're getting into the SEALs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 2000, yes, 2000, yeah. 2007, 2008. Yeah, right, yeah, so this is yeah. now where you're going over there and yeah. you're seeing combat yeah. and, and these situations. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about like, you know, this is now... Five years post Iraq, yeah. seven years post going into Afghanistan. Yeah. There's instability over there in the Middle East. What was what was that like? Like what was that time period? Like it it, it seems like it would have been, especially when you were coming in, a time where the morale was maybe at like an all time low from With the military, from a, military yeah, morale. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say for our community, guys don't go through hell hell go through buds to sit or go sit in guam bro yeah you know what i mean like that was like that was like the uh i don't want to say punch but that was like the the anticipation of finding out where you were going and knowing that there's a chance that after you 
finish this work up, your platoon could go to the Philippines mm. or go to Guam or go to Bahrain and just sit for six months. That's frightening. You, know you guys I mean? want the action. You want to, you want to, yeah, you go yeah. through, you do the, you go through training and all of this stuff and all this workup because you want to do a job. That's what you train for. You know what I mean? Like, and so it's like in our community, it's just like it's getting after it. You know, that's why we do. We want to be where the party is, if that yeah. makes sense. You yeah. Know what but saying? what, it, maybe I, I could, I could have been a little more yeah. clear on that question. Like what, yeah. in, in your opinion, were there things in, and again, we're being vague with yeah. exact places. It's yeah. just how it is yeah. with, from an intelligence perspective here. But like, what, were there things in the Middle East that you identified as, oh, this is not going to get better? Because I'm thinking, oh, you know, this oh. is a few years before yeah, ISIS. Like, yeah. did you kind of see something like an ISIS coming? I can't say that I, I, I mean, to me, I think that, I can't say that I saw ISIS coming. Um, I can say that I knew that I felt as though something would fill the void. I just didn't know what that something would be at mm. some point, right? So if we're talking about Iraq or if we're talking about Afghanistan, if we're talking about I mean, other places like Taliban felt, swooped in and filled that void, right? Yes. Took over. ISIS swooped in and filled that void, you know, once Americans pulled out for the most part, right? Yes. And so it was always in the back of everyone's, I would say most people's head that like, and that was one of the reasons why I think the part of the goal, and I don't want to speak, I want to be careful because I don't want to speak to what was going on in the minds of generals and admirals because I don't, I don't know. But I think that maybe one of the goals was to try and stabilize it and, and strengthen the, the governments or, or people in power to the best of the, of, of our ability so that whoever did come fill that void wouldn't be successful. Yeah, it's interesting and hindsight's 2020 now, but we're we're great at a lot of things as a country. One yeah. of the things we don't seem to be the best at and in fairness to us, I don't think a lot I think most countries yeah. aren't good at it from a power perspective, but like, you know, spreading the democracy the right way yeah, or getting the yeah. right people in charge. You yeah. look at it, that just seems to be, I yeah. mean, you mentioned it yourself, the Afghanistan examples. Yeah phenomenal for all the wrong reasons yeah. because you just you spent 20 years and yet same ending you yeah. know it's kind of like a loop yeah 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 and uh sad it is sad but uh what can you do man yeah <laughs> so I, I mean i have so many other questions in there yeah. but we we got to get you up to new york soon yeah. but but before we do that like when when you left the teams i i think what's going to be happening here i'm just looking at the clock like we probably are going to have an episode and a half here we're going to have an episode on your like career yeah. and what and your childhood and everything and then i'll probably put out an hour 10 minutes that we did on the human trafficking yeah. as its own which yeah. i think would be cool to do like yeah. as its own episode but you know without going into the things we already covered on, yeah. on human trafficking if this one's coming before the other one what when, when you got out of out of the teams like what why did you leave what what was the what was the motivation? My there? first son was born in 2014. My second son was born in 2015, and I looked at those boys. And though I want, I wanted to stay and I wanted to do 20 years, but I looked at my kids and I was just like, I want to be home. Mm. It wasn't like I was scared of dying or anything like that. For me, it was just like I want to be home because even like outside of deployments, like work up, you're gone a lot. 
Yeah. You know, you're going out to Utah, you're going out to Nyland, you're going out to, you know, Mojave Desert, you're going out to all these places and you come back for a week, then you got to go here and then you come in and it's a lot. And I just knew that I, you know, I was, I got it out of my system, you know, and I needed to be home with my boys and my wife and kids. And so it was a tough decision, but that was, that was ultimately the reason why I decided to pop smoke. It, well, it sounds like you jumped right into things yeah. as far as like you, you mentioned, you got the call from the organization Sacramento, started yeah. focusing on some of the human trafficking But I was in things. grad school when I got out. Actually, like when I was mm. in, I was, I, didn't know I was in, yeah, I, I got my bachelor's, you know, I want to say two years before oh, shit. I got out. Oh shit, you went to college while you yeah. were in there. Yeah, I want to say like a year and a half of the year. I, I finished quick. I My bachelor's really, really quick. I, I remember my counselors were just like, you're crazy. Cause I, was, I just stacked classes. I was just like, I'm taking as many classes as yeah. I can to finish this early. And then um, and I, I was in grad school getting my bat, my master's in organizational strategy. Like I, I, I I had I could have got that going the MBA route, but there's so many people with MBAs that I didn't, I didn't want to do the MBA route. So I did the uh, same business school, University of Charleston, West Virginia, but I went the organizational strategy route. And uh, I was doing that because I was going to go in business consulting full time because my brother-in-law is a YPO guy. You ever hear familiar with YPO? YPO? It stands for Young Presidents Organization. Mm-mm. In order to be in, you have to have become or be a millionaire and billionaire under the age of 40. There's chapters mm. all around the world. And uh, these guys control a lot of the wealth and, and women control a lot of the wealth around the world. And uh, so my brother-in-law is a YPO. He's part of the uh, Toronto chapter. Sounds like the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, yeah he's a, but uh, the good people. But uh, he was getting me a lot of consulting jobs. Mm. And uh, I didn't want to just rely on, oh, I was a SEAL and, you know, so... Let's go charge that hill, you know, go yeah. be a team player. I, I wanted to uh I wanted to have the education, the theory behind it as well. So um that's what I was planning on doing full time after I got out in January twenty sixteen and that's why I was in grad school. Did you have any I mean, you did some really, you were in the teams, you did some really serious shit. Did you have any uh, mental struggles or something coming home? Was there would did some of it stay with you? I would I would <laughs> There's always there's always going to be a little something residual uh, of the stuff that we do and the stuff that most guys do when they've gone in combat. So for sure, I think that I've had a I've had a I found a good process for myself to keep the demons at bay at bay. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To keep my focus, my faith is a big part of who I am, you know, mm. you know, you know, and prayer and relying on God and, and is, that's my, that's my center, you know, especially having this realization or belief that everything happens for a reason mm. and everything happens just the way it's supposed to happen. And that alone is, is comforting to me especially when things go bad. And I've had so many bad things happen to me, even like in the last few months. But just knowing that good will come out of it or has come out of it, you know what I mean? And so um, I would say that faith has been a big part of keeping me, my mind clean, keeping me focused and keeping me, you know, on the right path. Did you have that as a kid at all? No. No. When did that when did that come in for you? Um when I was 26. 
Mm. So I, I had flu- I had fluctuated between atheism and agnosticism up until the time I was 26. What did it? I had a rock bottom moment. I had a rock bottom moment, and uh, I tried all kinds of different things to fix me and to fix my situation, and nothing I tried worked. And you know, my brother, he's been he was. I mean, ever since he was in college, he'd been a Christian. And he would always tell me, he said, Remy, when, not if, but when you hit rock bottom, just remember to cry out to Jesus. And I remember making fun of him and mocking him and doing that all, just like, you're stupid, like, get away from me with all that crap. And when I hit my bottom moment, man, um, and mentally my brain was screwed. Did I, you talk about that bottom moment already? Was that something we discussed? No, no. Are you... No. Comfortable talking about that or Yeah, yeah. What what was it? It was a combination of things, man. It was uh in short, it was I did a, I treated a lot of people poorly. My mom, my brother, a girl who I was I was going to marry, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And um I went went out to the wilderness, long story short, had 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 the chance to really reflect on my life and really reflect on the decisions that I made and I didn't like what I saw. Mm. And it and it crushed me. It crushed me to to think how I the things that I did to my mom. Talked about stealing her engagement yes. ring, stealing money from her as a kid. Like all of these things started coming to my my forefront. Things that happened, you know, there's certain triggers I remember when I was at the Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute. Oh, shit. You went there? Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, there was a girl there, Brad knows, um, named Jamala, awesome actress. And she did a scene um, that triggered something in her that really took her to a dark place where she was just crying hysterically. She ran out of the building. And I ran out there and I chased her. And... She was just, she was on, she was hyper. She could, she could barely breathe. She was just out of it. And, uh, that one scene, that one thing in that scene, I can't remember quite what it was, triggered something that happened to her in her past in a strong way. And that's what happened to me. Mm. This one instance of being able to reflect triggered all of these things what i did to my mom things that i did years ago and i had thought about but never like quite like this you know things i did to my mom things that i did to my brother how i used to disrespect him and 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 not honor him and 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 then things i did to this girl you know i, I mean there's a lot more to the story but i broke my leg uh in jump school couldn't walk for three months and uh in that three months this girl like she dropped everything to take care of me mm. And uh, I was so I had been so angry at the world that I had poured out all that anger onto her, and uh, she didn't deserve it. And once I was able to walk, I left. I had been cheating on her anyway, but once I was able to walk, I left her. And I remember her crumbling to the floor and just saying, "How could you do this to me?" And I said, "Get out of my apartment." What are you, why are you still sitting on my floor? And then she got up, cried, and left. And she had given up so much for me. Um, and uh, I eventually got back with her, but still cheating on her and never f- physically abusive or any of that. Like, I never put a hand on her or anything like that, but just like putting her down. You know what I mean? And so, again, having that moment where I'm 
think reflecting on all the things I did to my mom, reflecting on all the things I did to my brother, reflecting on all the things I did to other people, reflecting on, this, on what I did to this woman I met that crushed me. And to think that I couldn't go back and fix it mm. was horrifying. Because again, going back to what I said before, I'm, my dad's mind is that what I inherited from my dad was this ability to see a problem or see a door and figure out a way to fix that problem. That's the way my mind has always been wired, everything that I face, everything that I do. And I think that that's what helps me as a writer, as a, whether it's a screenwriter writing books. It's like, you know, this ability, this challenge to be able to find a way out of a corner that I may might have written myself into. And that was the first time in my life that I felt like I had created this monster and I couldn't fix it. And I couldn't go back and fix all of the things that I did to all of the people that said they love me. And I tell you what, that is a very, for, at least for me, that is a very hard, that was a very horrifying thing for me to a point where I was just like, man, I don't even want to live anymore. You know what I mean? I can't live with the stuff that I, that I did. And that was when, you know, I took my brother's advice. It was just like, yo, I don't know if you're real Jesus, but help me. And I can't tell you that things changed right away, but I could tell you that I started to feel peace. Mm. And I started to, I felt, I felt hope. I felt a hope that I had never felt ever in my life. And I felt like the father that I had been chasing my whole life had been there. Mm. And he had been affirming me. He had been trying to guide me, but I was just not paying attention. And then in that, I felt like my father, God, was like, I'm here, I'm with you, I love you, you are my child, and uh, we're going to walk through this together, and you're going to be a different person. And that's, that's how it all happened. My wife and I were talking the other night, and uh, we were talking about our kids, and I was actually telling her the story about um, the kids at the barbecue running into the street. Yeah. I was telling her that this was last night. And she started telling me a story about um, a girl at the playground whose kid was getting picked on, but the parent wasn't doing anything. And and then another mother went up to the kid who was picking on the kid and said, stop picking on the kid. And then the mother of the kid who was picking on the kids went up to the mother who corrected the kid and said, you're not supposed to be correcting my kid. Blah, 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 blah. And, I, and, I, and that story came to mind that I I've never told my wife. I, told, I totally forgot because it came to mind because... The situation happened at the same park that the lady shared the story sure. with my kid. And uh, I told my wife, I was like, dude, when Caden was five years old, I remember he was at that same park and this bully was just bullying kids. And he had like another kid with him that was following him around. And he looked at my son, Caden, and he started and he kind of tapped the other kid like, yeah, we're going to get him. We're going to like go push. And I saw the kid like beelining towards my son and getting ready to hit him, push him, do whatever he was doing to the other kid. And I, and I was sitting on the bench and I stood up and all I said was, I said, hey, that's my son. And the kid looked at me and then ran away. <laughs> and that's what that moment was for me, that period when I was 26. It was like, God said, hey, you're my son. Mm. That's and, heavy, and, and, and yo, that's when I started looking at people differently. That's when it was like, life isn't about me anymore. 
Am I ever so slightly off here if I say that's when you were then coming back around to get officially into the seals? No, like, I, no, no, no. I was you were already, already in, in yeah, at that yeah, point. Yeah, because yeah. you had you you yeah, were out. Then in. you went I back. In. No, I was already in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and and thank God that it happened because I I I know guys who they you know as as seals and still friends with them and where that trident can really the power that comes with it the uh, accolades that come with it. It's, it's 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 not good at times. You know what I mean? Like, what do you mean by that? No, in my opinion, no human being was created to be worshipped by another human being. You know what I mean? Um, and I think you know, people who do get that that praise, that worship, that admiration, it can affect it. it, it, it if it's not deflected. I think it could lead to bad things. Like, you know, think about people with celebrities or rock stars, Kurt Cobain, you know, all that yeah. drugs, trying to escape, trying to find themselves and Whitney. all of these people, you yep. know, Whitney, like mm -hmm. all these. And then they end up losing their lives because they're put up on this pedestal and worship and it's hard to handle and they're trying to escape drugs and all of these other things. And uh, when you're a SEAL, you know how it is when people, how people look up to seals, you know what I mean? Yes. It's like, and then when you're, when you're in the military, it's like you go to the base. That's not the seal base. You go to NAB or go to another base. And you have that trident on everybody stops and they look and like, Oh crap. Like you're a seal. And it's, it's like it, that can build up pride within yes. the person. You know what I mean? And there's been guys who, you know, um, it's been too much power, you know, and, and, Going out, getting drunk, fighting, beating people—just a lot of crazy stuff—and and so I know that if I didn't like, if God didn't find me, I don't want to say I found God, but if God didn't find me, then I would uh, I would have been very destructive as my as I went on, and I don't think I could. I, I don't think I could have. I, I just I just I know I would have been very destructive. Well, I'm glad you had that moment, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's clear. I yeah. I got the chills listening to some yeah. of that. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, to have that on camera too yeah. and share that for people because even not being a seal, like yeah. people can relate to different struggles yeah. in their own life 100%. or things where they stop looking in the mirror yeah. or you know have a moment where things aren't clear. And it's very interesting that yeah. you looked at that experience as also. I forget you you said it way better than I'm going to remember yeah. it, but you're like it was like. Your dad, who you were always chasing, yeah, he was there the whole time. Yeah. Oh, there the whole time. Yeah. That is, that's beautiful, yeah. man. That's yeah, and everything. There's all these different connections, man. And uh, looking at Tiana and what she did for me, the perfect timing of her being in the Marine recruiter not being there, but yes. her being there. And that's just, an angel right yeah, there. Yeah, man. So it's just, you know, I've been blessed, man, and I can't take credit for everything i am and where i'm at today because i'm an idiot <laughs> you know I, mean? I don't think you're giving yourself <laughs> enough credit man you're doing some pretty amazing things but yeah all right guys that brings us to the end of part one of my sit down with remy and part two as i think i've already mentioned is going to be completely
completely different. For about an hour and 10 or 15 minutes, Remy took us inside the dark underbelly of some of the worldwide black markets that he has investigated since leaving the Navy SEALs, and you are not going to want to miss this one. Once again, we'll be putting this one out in the next two to three days, so keep your eyes out on YouTube and Spotify. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the channel so that you don't miss it and leave a like and comment on this video before you leave. Thank you to everyone who has already done that. That said, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace.